You are listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans as they examine America's most infamous true crime cases as they were established in our courts and the basis for the decisions of the appeals courts, not the court of public opinion. Here's Lisa and Kyle. Welcome to season two of Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. We're your hosts, Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans, and this is episode 10, Notable Supreme Court Cases, part one. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about cases that we've heard about in the context of state and federal post-conviction litigation for inmates, including Rodney Reed, Richard Glossop, and the West Memphis Three. We'll talk about the cases decided between 1923 and 1985, including Napu, Brady, Gideon versus Wainwright, Henry Winship, Gilio, (laughs) sorry guys, Miranda, Furman, Greg, and Strickland. We'll also briefly look at the background of each case, the issues raised by the petitioners, and the decisions of the Supreme Court. And good afternoon, Kyle. How are you? I'm doing well, Lisa. How are you? I'm trying not to melt here in Texas, but overall doing pretty well. Same, same here. The earth is trying to parboil everybody. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it's like the sun <laughs> needs to go back about like a couple of light years. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know if you heard, I, I recently had to replace my air conditioner. Oh, that's terrible. And so that was um, traumatic and expensive, but <laughs> I managed. And uh, you were off doing some family things. Yeah, you enjoyed your your time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's tough, but good. Taking the the girl child off to college, so mm-hmm. all good. All right. Well, let's get started. Um, um, basically, I'll I'll give everybody the case title, uh, and then a summary and um, where the cases came from, and kind of generally what the issues were. Uh, a couple of them weren't even criminal cases, but we've heard about them in the context of 1983 DNA post conviction litigation. So I included them. Uh, And so the first one is Rooker versus Fidelity Trust Company. Uh, That case citation is 263 U.S. 413, and it was decided in 1923. Uh, Appellant sought review of a degree of the United States District Court for the District of Indiana that dismissed a bill of equity for want of jurisdictions. Appellants had brought a bill in equity to have the judgment of a state circuit court, which was affirmed by the Indiana Supreme Court, declared null and void. Appellees brought a motion for dismissal of the appeal or alternatively for affirmation of the decree. Appellants contended that a judgment of the state circuit court violated the contract, due process, and the equal protection clauses. 
the case related to the duties of a corporation holding property under a conventional trust. After dismissal of their action, appellants sought review in the United States Supreme Court. The court overruled appellee's motion to dismiss, but upheld the decree. The court held that the federal district court had no jurisdiction to entertain what was essentially an appeal from a state court. It affirmatively appear, appeared from the bill that the judgment was rendered in a case in which the state court had jurisdiction over the parties and subject matter, that a full hearing was held, that the state court's judgment was responsive to the issues, and that the judgment was affirmed on appeal to the state's highest court. Thus, there was an effective and conclusive adjudication. The court noted that the bill was merely an attempt to collaterally attack the judgment for alleged errors of law committed in the state court. However, after the time in which to appeal elapsed, appellants could not be permitted to do indirectly what they no longer could do directly. And the outcome was that the appellee's motion to affirm the district court's judgment was sustained. The court ruled that the state court's judgment was an effective and conclusive adjudication, and the federal district court lacked jurisdiction over the case. Uh, the case came out of Hamilton County, Indiana, and this involved a trust held by Fidelity uh, Trust Company in an estate. The petitioners were Dora Rooker and William Velpu Rooker. The respondent was Fidelity Trust Company of Indianapolis. The trial court was Hamilton Circuit Court. The state court that the appeal was taken from to the United States Supreme Court was the Supreme Court of Indiana. The decision was rendered on December 10th, 1923, affirming the district court's uh, dismissal. And the holding was the district court had no jurisdiction of a suit brought there by the party who was defeated in the state courts against the successful opponents, all citizens of the same state, to set aside the judgment as void because of errors alleged to have been committed by the state courts in deciding constitutional questions. And the opinion was authored by Judge Van Devanter. Um, in these older opinions, you really only know who the author was. You don't know who the court was. You don't know who... Um, who joined the opinion and and I'm I'm guessing this one was probably this may have even been a summary opinion by a single justice. Um I this one because of the age of the case is hard to do any digging and hard to get any more information than what's available in the opinion. So we hear about that one when unsuccessful litigants in state court trying to get DNA testing file certain types of federal claims in U.S. District Court to try to get DNA testing ordered by the federal district court. So that's the context. Uh, I think Rooker Feldman was used in Kevin Cooper and also um, Larry Swearingen. So... Um, any questions? Kyle? 
Did I lose sorry, you? I'm try I'm, no, I'm trying my, I'm sorry, I'm having major uh, computer problems, though. I'm trying to open my Zoom. It's getting there, but no, no question today. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> it's like my Zoom will not pop up. My, uh, my computer is, I think maybe it's melting from the heat. Oh, okay. All right. You might want to think about getting a new one. I mean, because yeah, you don't want it to. Probably not a bad idea. You you don't want it to crash and not be able <laughs> to get anything, um, which is another reason I don't have as much background as I would like on these cases, because I did a lot of I try to do a lot of my background research while I'm typing up the notes, and my desktop computer is feeling poorly. And so basically I turn it on, I do what I need to do, and I turn it off. Because I got a blue screen of death last Monday. Oh, uh, that's not fun. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. And um, and also I want to say to anybody listening, if uh, if there's a case that I don't cover today that was decided in this period between 1923 and 1985, by all means, please you know, leave a note on Facebook, a note on YouTube, and I will certainly look into it. Maybe we can do another one of these episodes down the road if if listeners find it to be enjoyable, that is. <laughs> anyway, all right. Our next case is Napu versus Illinois, uh, 360 U.S. 264, and that is 1959. Uh, this case arose out of an armed robbery and murder that occurred on August 21st, 1938. It was a case in the criminal court of Cook County, Illinois. The victim was an unnamed off-duty police officer. The defendant was Henry Napieu. Uh, again, he was arrested in Cook County, Illinois and tried in Cook County, Illinois. And the state court from which the uh, U.S. Supreme Court writ came was the Supreme Court of Illinois. Uh, petitioner sought review of a decision of the Supreme Court of Illinois that petitioner was entitled to no relief for a prosecutor's failure to correct testimony that he knew to be false. The court reversed a decision that held that the prosecutor's failure to correct knowingly false testimony was not a due process violation under U.S. Constitutional Amendment 14. The witness testified that he had received no promise of consideration in return for his testimony. Although the prosecutor knew that he had promised consideration to the witness, he did not correct the false testimony. Other evidence was introduced that the public defender had promised to do what he could for the witness. The court held that the fact that the false testimony went to the witness's credibility did not affect the principle that false evidence could not be used to obtain a conviction. In addition, the fact that other evidence regarding the witness's credibility was introduced did not remove the taint of the false testimony. Thus, the judgment was reversed. Um, so the outcome was that the court reversed the decision that petitioner was not entitled to post-conviction relief based on the prosecutor's failure to correct knowingly false testimony. The fact that the testimony went to the witness's credibility was irrelevant, and the fact that other evidence regarding witness's credibility was introduced did not remove the taint. So the decision was um, on June 15, 1959, they reversed. 
and they held that the failure of the prosecutor to correct the testimony of the witness, which he knew to be false, denied petitioner due process of law in violation of the 14th Amendment. And this opinion was authored by Chief Judge Warren. Um, it looks again like it was a unanimous opinion of the court. There were no uh, references to concurrences or dissents in the opinion, although that may not have been something that they um, tallied in those days the way they do now. Um, this is one we've heard about with Glossop. Although um, Glossop is a little bit more speculative, uh, this was pretty cut and dried. The prosecutor knew that the witness had been offered a reduction in a sentence and the public defender after the trial filed a reduction, a motion to reduce. And the prosecutor did not say, well, didn't the, pro you know, didn't the public defender, isn't the public defender going to try to help you reduce your sentence? So that was, that was where that one came from. Um, so um, moving on, we have Gideon versus Wainwright, 372 U.S. 335. And that was decided in 1963. The crime involved a breaking and entering with intent to commit a misdemeanor, which in the state of Florida is a felony, proving that Florida is Florida. <laughs> uh, because it's, it's weird. It's intent to commit a misdemeanor, <laughs> but that's a felony. So wait, did he actually in commit the felony or just intend to? Well, in, in breaking and entering, intending to commit the misdemeanor, it was a felony. Gotcha. Um, this is it, it that this one is so crazy. And even though this is like this is the case you hear about a lot, because this is a case that involved um indigent defense issues being decided that that changed the way criminal uh, prosecutions were handled and resulted in indigent defense uh, programs being established for any crime, all crime. Um, there's not a lot of substantive information about the underlying case. Uh, the jurisdiction, again, was Florida. The defendant was Clarence Earl Gideon. Um, and impressively, he pursued this pro se or improper person entirely. Um, the case appealed from to the U.S. Supreme Court was the Supreme Court of Florida. Uh, the procedural posture petitioner inmate state habeas corpus petition attacking his felony conviction for breaking and entering with intent to commit a misdemeanor and his five-year prison sentence was denied by the Supreme Court of Florida. The court granted certiorari. The inmate's charged offense was a felony under Florida law. He appeared in state court without funds and without a lawyer and asked the court to appoint counsel for him. The state court refused because only a defendant in a capital offense was entitled to appointed counsel. The inmate was convicted. He challenged his conviction and sentence on the ground that the trial court's refusal to appoint counsel for him denied him rights guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. 
The court held that the Sixth Amendment guarantees the accused the right of assistance of counsel in all criminal prosecutions. The court had construed the Sixth Amendment to require federal courts to provide counsel for defendants unable to employ counsel unless the right was competently and intelligently waived. The court looked to the fundamental nature of the Bill of Rights guarantees to decide whether the 14th Amendment made them obligatory to the states. The Sixth Amendment's guarantee of counsel is one of the fundamental and essential rights made obligatory upon the states by the 14th Amendment, and Betts versus Brady, a case decided in 1942, was overruled. The court reversed the denial of the inmate's habeas petition and remanded the case to the state Supreme Court for further proceedings. So that decision was uh, March 18, 1963, uh, reversed and remanded. And the court held the right of an indigent defendant in a criminal trial to have the assistance of counsel as a fundamental right essential to a fair trial. And petitioner's trial and conviction without the assistance of counsel violated the 14th Amendment. Uh, of course, as we mentioned, Brett Betts versus Brady was overruled. This opinion was authored, the majority opinion was authored by Justice Black. He was joined by Justices Warren, Brennan, Stewart, White, Goldberg, and Douglas. Uh, Justices Douglas and Clark filed concurring opinions. Uh, Douglas joined the court's opinion, but elaborated that in, in a separate opinion about the relation between the Bill of Rights and the first section of the 14th Amendment. Clark concurred in the result, but rested his decision on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, Judge Harlan also Justice Harlan also concurred in the result, pointing out that the court's decision should not be interpreted as automatically carrying over the entire body of federal law on the point and applying it in full sweep to the states. So I think he was a concurrent dissent in part. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, but what basically happened, Florida amended their law. They also put in place a process for any defendant convicted of a felony, I believe, or misdemeanor without counsel who asked for counsel to obtain post-conviction relief. So uh, they they put it, they took it very seriously. Uh, and this became, you know, the right to counsel for any criminal prosecution. Yeah, I mean, Gideon versus Wainwright, that's one of the biggies. I mean, that's one that if you take a basic poli-sci class, you're going to have to study Gideon versus Rain yes. Wainwright. And again, I am, I'm incredibly impressed with Mr. Gideon, who pursued this. When he got to the U.S. Supreme Court, he was appointed counsel for briefing. Because the U.S. Supreme Court rules for for their court are um, daunting to lay people. Um, yeah. But, I mean, he got it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, it's impressive. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. And uh, I think he got cert granted um, on his own improper person. So very impressive. And unfortunately, it predates the, um, you know, the the 
wide availability of electronic records. Yeah. All right. The next case is Brady versus Maryland, 373 U.S. 83, also decided in 1963. This involved a first-degree murder case uh, resulting from a robbery uh, in Anne Arundel County, Maryland. The victim was William Brooks. The defendant was John Leo Brady, and he had an accomplice named Charles Donald Boblet. Uh, the court appealed from to the U.S. Supreme Court was Court of Appeals of Maryland. Certiorari was granted to a decision of the Court of Appeals of Maryland to consider whether petitioner was denied a federal right when the appeals court restricted its grant of a new murder trial to the question of punishment, leaving the determination of guilt undisturbed. The appeals court granted a retrial after holding that suppression of evidence by the state violated petitioner's rights under due process clause u.s amendment 14 overview uh judgment granting petitioner a new murder trial that was restricted to the issue of punishment was affirmed after petitioner was convicted of murder and sentenced to death he learned that the state withheld a statement in which another individual admitted the actual homicide the court held that suppression of evidence favorable to an accused upon request violated the due process clause, U.S. Constitutional Amendment 14, where the evidence was material to guilt or punishment, regardless of the state's good or bad faith. The suppression of evidence violated petitioner's due process rights and required a retrial on sentence. The court held, however, that it could not assume if the suppressed evidence had been used in the first trial the ruling that the statement was inadmissible as to guilt might have been disregarded by the jury. In Maryland, it was the trial court, not the jury, which ruled on the admissibility of evidence relating to guilt. The appeals court statement that nothing in the suppressed confession could have reduced petitioner's offense below a first-degree murder was a ruling on the admissibility of the confession as to the issue of innocence or guilt. The judgment granting petitioner a new trial restricted to the issue of punishment was affirmed, where the suppression of evidence by the state violated petitioner's right to due process of law and required a retrial on the sentence. The court held, however, that the appeals court had ruled the suppressed confession was inadmissible as to the issue of petitioner's guilt. Um, this opinion was issued or decision was issued on May 13, 1963, and it affirmed uh, the state appellate court decision. So in reality, the state appellate court had already done the right thing. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court merely attached precedent going forward in other criminal cases across the country to the 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 um, idea that withholding evidence material to guilt or innocence or punishment is wrong. And the court held the petitioner was not denied a federal constitutional right when his new trial was restricted to the question of punishment and the judgment is affirmed. Suppression by the, by the prosecution of evidence favorable to an accused who has requested it violates due process where the evidence is material either to guilt or to punishment, 
irrespective of the good faith or bad faith of prosecution. When the Court of Appeals restricted petitioner's new trial to the question of punishment, it did not deny him due process or equal protection of the laws under the 14th Amendment since the suppressed evidence was admissible only on the issue of punishment. Um, this opinion was authored by Justice Douglas. He was joined by Justice Brennan and Justice White. Justice White issued a concurring opinion expressing the view that the court should not have reached the due process question that it decided he concurred in the disposition of petitioner's equal protection argument, though. Harlan and Black issued a dissent, or Harlan authored a dissent and was joined by Justice Black, expressing the view that because of uncertainty in the pertinent Maryland law and because the Maryland Court of Appeals did not, in terms, address itself to the equal protection question, the judgment below should have been vacated and the case remanded to the Court of Appeals for further consideration. Um, any questions? So that's the infamous Brady violation. This is the infamous Brady violation. Hey, good, good it's the Brady violation, not as accomplished the Boblet violation. <laughs> that would sound funny. But no, well, that, that, I mean, was, that yeah. I mean, that seems reasonable, right? I mean, if you want a fair justice system, right? I mean, the prosecution, I mean, I know we have an adversarial system, which I go back and forth on whether or not that's a good thing. But at the end of the day, we want justice, right? We want the convicted to be, you know, we want the we want the truth to come out. And so it only seems fair that the prosecution should provide, you know, you know, exculpatory evidence to the defendants. But this one is a little... Brady and Boblet committed this crime together. Brady knew Boblet's the one who committed the actual homicide. So why would he now this was this was a statement made by Boblet to police admitting to the actual homicide. But this is information that Brady would have known. So it's kind of, and, and Brady is going to be, uh, we're going to look at Brady in the context of future cases. Yeah. I mean, that becomes such a big deal, right? Week. So many cases. Yeah. So many cases. But I think the, the line is because this was a statement Boblet made to police and Brady wasn't given that specific statement. That is where they hung their hat. All right. Even though one could argue Brady knew Boblet's the one who committed the actual murder, he could have presented that evidence in other ways during the punishment phase. And that statement had been ruled inadmissible during the guilt innocence phase. So, or, well, this may be before they were two phases. So this was inadmissible as to guilt, but the court of appeals found it could have been used in punishment. So, that's interesting. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. a whole other ball of wax. Like that's a whole other episode just to unpack that. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And that's one we may look at more in depth later. Um, that's another yeah, thing I'm, for, I'm trying, I'm sorry. I'm thinking on the fly. I'm trying to process that. That's a really interesting ruling. I, uh-huh. Yeah. There's a lot there, yes. Yeah.
So yeah, we'll um again it, and if you're listening, uh, leave us a comment on YouTube, leave us a comment on Twitter, leave us a comment on uh, Facebook. If you if we talk about a case you want to know more about, let us know. Um, and Kyle, of course, if you have a case that you want to look at, let me know. And you know Brady's one that's going to probably go on my list of let's do an in depth full episode. Uh, yeah, it feels like a whole yeah, it could be a whole case, a whole episode just on this one. Yeah. All right. So next case: Miranda versus Arizona. 384 U.S. 436, uh, 1966. Now, this involved multiple cases because it was four cases in which confessions were admitted um, or unwarned confessions were admitted in four different cases. The Miranda case involved a kidnapping and rape that occurred on March 3rd, 1963 in Phoenix, Maricopa County, Arizona. The victim was an 18-year-old girl who is unnamed. Uh, the defendant was Ernest Arthur Miranda. I've also seen him referred to as Ernesto Miranda. He was arrested on March 13th, 1963 in Phoenix, Arizona. The three, four cases rather, were case number 759 was Miranda versus Arizona. The police arrested the defendant and took him to a special interrogation room where they secured a confession. On appeal, the Supreme Court of Arizona affirmed. Um, so that was the Supreme Court of Arizona. 760, Vignera versus New York. The defendant made oral admissions to the police after interrogation in the afternoon and then signed an inculpatory statement upon being questioned by an assistant, assistant district attorney later the same evening. His conviction was affirmed by the Appellate Division, Second Department, in New York State. So that was uh, an appeal from the Court of Appeals of New York. 761 was Westover versus United States. The defendant was handed over to the Federal Bureau of Investigation by local authorities after they had detained and interrogated him for a lengthy period, both at night and the following morning. After some two hours of questioning, the federal officers had obtained a sign, had obtained signed statements from the defendant. At his trial in the United States District Court for the Northern District of California, at which the confessions obtained by the FBI were admitted in evidence, he was convicted of the California robberies, and his conviction was affirmed by the Court of Appeals from the Ninth Circuit. So this is appealed from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And finally, 762 California versus Stewart. The local police held the defendant five days in the station and interrogated him on nine separate occasions before they secured his inculpatory statement. At his trial in a California state court on a charge of kidnapping to commit robbery, rape, and murder, his confession was introduced in evidence. He was convicted, but on appeal, the Supreme Court of California reversed, holding that the confession was not admissible because defendant should have been advised of his rights, his right to remain silent, and of his right to counsel. Um, so this was appealed from the Supreme Court of California, and I believe California was the appellee, uh, the petitioner. Um, and that's another thing to, to kind of um, let people know. Um, in Supreme Court, 
the petitioner is always first and the respondent is always second. So sometimes you'll see a case that is um, like sometimes you'll see you might see um, Warlock, who is a warden of a prison versus Smith, who is the inmate. And that's because the lower court decided against Mr. Warlock and he is petitioning the U.S. Supreme Court to look at that decision. So because that can get a little confusing because we're used yeah. to seeing people versus right. in the underlying criminal cases and then defendant versus in the um post-conviction realm um so the procedural posture of these cases certiorari was granted to review judgment from the supreme court of arizona for this and three other similar cases to de determine the admissibility of statements obtained from defendant who was subjected to custodial police interrogation and the necessity for procedures assuring that defendant was accorded his privilege under the U.S. Constitutional Amendment 5, not to be compelled to incriminate himself. The United, Supreme, United States Supreme Court reversed the judgment of these three cases and affirmed the fourth. When an individual was taken into custody and subjected to questioning, the U.S. Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination was jeopardized. To protect the privilege, procedural safeguards were required. A defendant was required to be warned before questioning that he had the right to remain silent and that anything he said can be used against him in a court of law. A defendant was required to be told that he had the right to the presence of attorney, and if he cannot afford an attorney, one was to be appointed for him prior to any questioning if he so desired. After these warnings were given, a defendant could knowingly and intelligently waive these rights and agree to answer questions or make a statement. Evidence obtained as a result of interrogation was not to be used against a defendant at trial unless the prosecution demonstrated the warnings were given and knowingly and intelligently waived. Effective waiver required that the accused was offered counsel, but intelligently and understandingly rejected the offer. Presuming waiver from a silent record was impermiss impermissible. So three cases were reversed and one was affirmed. Uh, the decision was handed down on June 13, 1966. Uh, they reversed 759 Miranda, 760 Vignera, and 767, uh, 761 Westover, and they affirmed 762 Stewart. And the holding is pretty uh, is pretty lengthy. Um, the prosecution may not use statements, whether exculpatory or inculpatory, stemming from questioning initiated by law enforcement officers after a person has been taken into custody or otherwise deprived of his freedom of action in any significant way, unless it demonstrates the use of procedural safeguards effective to secure the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. The atmosphere and environment of incommunicado interrogation as it exists today is inherently intimidating and works to undermine the privilege against self-incrimination. 
unless adequate preventative measures are taken to dispel the compulsion inherent in custodial surroundings, no statement obtained from the defendant can truly be the product of his free choice. The privilege against self-incrimination, which has had a long and expansive historical development, is the essential mainstay of our adversary system and guarantees to the individual the right to remain silent unless he chooses to speak in the unfettered exercise of his own will during a period of custodial interrogation, as well as in the courts or during the course of other official investigations. The decision in Escobedo versus Illinois, 378 U.S. 478, stress the need for protective devices to make the process of police interrogation conform to the dictates of the privilege. And I didn't pull Escobedo um, because this case expanded on it. Uh, but it is one, if anybody wants to look at Escobedo, we can look at Escobedo. In the absence of other effective measures, the following procedures to safeguard the Fifth Amendment privilege must be observed. The person in custody must, prior to interrogation, be clearly informed that he has the right to remain silent and that anything he says will be used against him in court. He must be clearly informed that he has a right to consult with a lawyer and to have the lawyer with him during interrogation and that if he is indigent, a lawyer will be appointed to represent him. If the individual indicates prior to or during questioning that he wishes to remain silent, the interrogation must cease. If he states that he wants an attorney, the questioning must cease until an attorney is present. Where an interrogation is conducted without the presence of attorney and a statement is taken, a heavy burden rests on the government to demonstrate that the defendant knowingly and intelligently waived his right to counsel. Where the individual answers some questions during in-custody interrogation, he has not waived his privilege and may invoke his right to remain silent thereafter. The warnings required and the waiver needed are, in the absence of a fully effective equivalent, prerequisites to the admissibility of any statement inculpatory or exculpatory made by a defendant. The limitations on the interrogation process required for the protection of the individual's constitutional rights should not cause an undue interference with a proper system of law enforcement, as demonstrated by the procedures of the FBI and the safeguards afforded in other jurisdictions. In each of these cases, the statements were obtained under circumstances that did not meet constitutional standards for protection of the privilege against self-incrimination. And of course, I think anybody who grew up in the 70s and 80s remembers TV police shows with the little card. You have the right to remain yeah. silent. Anything you say can and will <laughs> be used against you. You have the right to an attorney. Uh, and in in watching true crime, you may have seen a uh, first 48 where initially a defendant or a suspect is in the room. He's gotten his rights. He's talking. And then when they ask a tough question, he sits back and says, I want a lawyer. Yeah. And they have to stop. Or he says, yeah, this I is don't definitely one of the this is I mean, we just. I mean, besides Gideon, this is definitely one that you see all the time. I mean, the Miranda violation, the, the Miranda warnings, because you see everybody, all the shows, it's like, give me, have you read, have you read the Miranda rights? Have you read uh -huh. the Miranda warnings? <laughs> or I don't know how they call them. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing too, is I've seen, I have seen almost abuse by suspects 
Oh yeah, totally. Where they'll talk for a little bit. And then when the questions get tough, they either say, I don't want to talk anymore. I'm I like, want to stop or right. I want to. And, you know, I've had people uh, like the West Memphis three cases, one where, you know, the allegation that Miss Kelly's Miranda rights were violated six different ways to Sunday um, was always made. And, and well, he, they weren't, he signed the waiver. Well, then there was some, you know, there was some coercion to get him to sign the waiver and that's how cops are and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, he knew his rights. He knew he had the right to remain silent. He just didn't have the ability to do so. And he made that choice and he was 17 years old, like a month shy of his 18th birthday or, or a few weeks shy of his 18th birthday. Um, you know, that's, that's the game. But um, I think Miranda yeah. has since been superseded by a statute. But um, I only found reference to it in a case. So that's something I'm going to look at for next week. Because it was either superseded by a statute or case decided in the 2000s. So um, the majority opinion in Miranda was authored by Chief Judge Warren. Um, he was joined by Justices Douglas, Brennan, and Fortas. Justice Clark concurred and dissented. Um, basically, he concurred in the result in California versus Stewart and would affirm the convictions in Miranda, uh, Vignera, and Westover. In each of those cases, he found from the circumstances no warrant for reversal. And then Ju Justice Harlan authored his dissent joined by Justices Stewart and White, finding that all four of the cases involved here present express claims that confessions were inadmissible, not because of coercion in the traditional due process sense, but solely because of lack of counsel or lack of warnings concerning counsel and silence. For the reasons stated in this opinion, I would adhere to the due process test and reject the new requirements inaugurated by the court. So even back then, not everybody agreed. Um, and I, there's funny, Ron White has had a bit that he did on one of the, um, you know, one of the tours that he did with Jeff Foxworthy and Bill mm -hmm. Engvall and, um, uh, oh my God, Larry the Cable Guy. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was like, I was trying to think of who's the last one. He's uh, and he says, you know, I I knew I had the right to remain silent. I just didn't have the ability. <laughs> Bill White's funny, <laughs> and I think we've seen that. I, I think guess. we've seen that on cops. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, and I mean, I I've had a couple of episodes of cops like you had the right uh, to remain silent. Dude, please <laughs> shut up. I know cops are the best. Like, no, why are you you're like why are you admitting to everything you did wrong? Because like, all right, so the next math. <laughs> the next case is Witherspoon versus Illinois, three ninety one U.S. five ten, uh, decided in nineteen sixty eight. It involved a murder that occurred on. Not to interrupt you, but it's mm -hmm. just it's amazing to me just to take a step back, like. How much of the world was established in the 60s? It's like all these cases were on the Warren court, right? Yeah. Like, 
Yeah. Like the the Warren court totally reshaped America. Definitely. And reshaped a lot of uh a lot of post conviction yeah. litigation. Yeah. Um, as did the Burger Court. Yeah. One of the reasons I chose to uh stop this at uh nineteen eighty four is because I got to fifty four pages of notes and still had a huge stack. Yeah, it's so I was like, okay, <laughs> this is getting out of hand. <laughs> I mean, because that was so really when the court became decided. such an activist court. Yes. Uh, but in both ways. Yes. Um, all right. So Witherspoon versus Illinois, 391 U.S. 510, decided in 1968. This uh, case arose from a murder that occurred on April 29th, 1959. It was in Cook County, Illinois. The victim was Mitchell Stone. The defendant was William C. Witherspoon. Uh, he was found guilty at his trial in April of 1960 and sentenced to death. Uh, the court appealed from was the Supreme Court of Illinois. And the petitioner prisoner who had been convicted of murder and sentenced to death sought review of the judgment of the Illinois Supreme Court, which denied him post-conviction relief. At the prisoner's trial for murder, the prosecution eliminated nearly half of the veneer of prospective jurors by challenging under the authority of Illinois Revised Statute, Chapter 38, Paragraph 743, 1959. Any veneermen who expressed qualms about capital punishment. Only five of the 47 veneermen who were eliminated explicitly stated that under no circumstances would they vote to impose capital punishment. The prisoner was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. The Supreme Court reversed the sentence because the composition of the jury violated the prisoner's rights under the 6th and 14th Amendments. Though there was not a per se rule that would invalidate the conviction, the jury's impartiality with respect to sentencing was inadequate. Where the prosecutor was allowed to eliminate every veneerman who expressed any reservations about the death penalty, the state crossed the line of neutrality producing a jury uncommonly willing to condemn a man to die. To execute the prisoner would have deprived him of his life without due process of law. And so the court reversed the sentence of death. Now, again, this was um, 47 people eliminated because they said they had some qualms about the death penalty. Not that they couldn't impose it or wouldn't impose it. Not that they wouldn't follow the law, but that they had qualms um, and the U.S. Supreme Court found it to be that to be out of line. The decision was handed down June 3rd, 1968, and the penalty was reversed. The holding was that neither on the basis of the record in this case, nor as a matter of judicial notice of presently available information, can it be concluded that the exclusion of jurors opposed capital punishment results in an unrepresentative jury on the issue of guilt or substantially increases the risk of conviction? Although it has not been shown that the jury was biased with respect to guilt, it is self-evident that in the distinct role as arbiter of the punishment to be imposed, this jury fell woefully short of that impartiality to which a defendant is entitled under the sixth and 14th Amendments. 
a man who opposes the death penalty, no less than one who favors it, can make the discretionary choice of punishment entrusted to him by the state and can thus obey the oath he takes as a juror. But in a nation where so many have come to oppose capital punishment, a jury from which all such persons have been excluded cannot perform the task demanded of it, that of expressing the conscience of the community on the ultimate question of life or death. Just as a state may not entrust the determination of whether a man is innocent or guilty to a tribunal organized to convict, so it may not entrust the determination of whether a man should live or die to a tribunal organized to return a verdict of death. And no sentence of death can be carried out, regardless of when it was imposed, if the Wadir testimony indicates that the jury that opposed recommended the sentence, imposed or recommended the sentence, was chosen by excluding the Nearman for cause simply because they voiced general objections to capital punishment or, expe- or expressed conscientious or religious scruples against its infliction. This opinion was authored by, uh, the majority opinion was authored by Justice Stewart. He was joined by Justices Warren, Brennan, Fortas, and Marshall. Um, Justice Douglas authored a dissent, uh, found that one, there was no distinction, that no distinction should be made between those who are nearmen who voice merely scruples against capital punishment and those who are opposed to the death sentence that they would never inflict on a defendant. And the verdict of guilty should also be reversed. Another dissent was issued by Justice Black, joined by Justice White and Harlan. Uh, the state should not be forced to accept jurors who are bound to be biased against one of the critical issues in a trial. And finally, Justice White also authored a uh, dissent that found that the count, uh, constitutional grounds provided in the opinion were inadequate to support the court's holding. So um, one dissent, basically they felt that Witherspoon should get a whole new trial while the second one ow, um, felt that this this holding went too far. And um, this is where uh, death penalty juries, especially after Greg changed, where, you know, now there is more inquiry into even if you oppose capital punishment or, or you uh, have qualms about it, whether you can follow the law. Right is it's the is the issue and if you if you say you can't impose a death penalty that means you won't follow you won't follow the law exactly yep exactly so, all right um this is and this is another you know seminal case that that has shaped our criminal justice system yeah i mean i know i said it before but it's amazing how much in the 60s the warren and the burger court just come I mean, basically mm-hmm. just created a, almost like a new world. Or, I mean, not a new world or the conspiracy sense, but just really just recreated so much and just like created a whole new worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Our next case, Henry Winship, 397 U.S. 358, decided in 1970. 
Um, this involved larceny, larceny committed by a juvenile. Uh, and it was an adjudication of a juvenile for delinquency. Um, the jurisdiction was the New York Supreme Court First Judicial Department. The defendant was Samuel W. He was a juvenile, so I will not identify him by anything other than that. Um, the uh, court appealed from was the Court of Appeals in New York. Petitioner on behalf of a juvenile sought review of a judgment from the Court of Appeals of New York that the determinations to be made at a juvenile adjudicatory hearing were to be based on a preponderance of the evidence as provided in New York Family Court Act Section 744B. Petitioner appeared on juvenile's behalf as his adjudicatory proceeding to determine his delinquency. The juvenile had been charged with committing acts that, had they been done by an adult, adult, would have been larceny. The juvenile court made its determination based on a preponderance of the evidence presented, relying on New York Family Court Act 744B, and ordered him so, to a training school for one and a half years with possible extensions to his 18th birthday. The Supreme Court found that the same concerns that led to the establishment of proof beyond a reasonable doubt in criminal matters were no less evident in a juvenile proceeding, and particularly in this case, where the juvenile was charged with an act that rendered him liable to confinement for up to six years. The court rejected Respondent City's argument that delinquency adjudications were not convictions and would have no effect on his citizenship rights or privileges. The court acknowledged that the underlying policy of the juvenile justice system was rehabilitation, but that none of the substantive benefits of the juvenile process would be compromised by adopting the higher standard of proof. The judgment that a determination of whether a juvenile committed an act was to be based on a preponderance of the evidence was reversed. The constitutional safeguard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt was required during the adjudicatory stage of delinquency proceedings, and the New York statute providing to the contrary was unconstitutional. Uh, so they held proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is required by the due process clause in criminal trials, is among the essentials of due process and fair treatment required during the adjudicatory stage when a juvenile is charged with an act that would constitute a crime if committed by an adult. Uh, the majority was authored by Judge Justice Brennan. It was per curiam, which means by the court. Um, there was a concurrence authored by Justice Harlan, who joined the court's opinion with the observations that, one, although the phrases preponderance of the evidence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt were quantitatively imprecise, Nevertheless, they communicated to the finder of fact different notions concerning the degree of confidence that he was expected to have in the correctness of his factual conclusions. Two, the reasonable doubt standard in a criminal case was bottomed on the fundamental value determination that it was far worse to convict an innocent man than to let a guilty man go free. Three, although the consequences of determination of delinquency were not identical to those of conviction in a criminal case, Nevertheless, a juvenile court judge should be no less convinced of the factual conclusion that the accused committed the criminal act with which he was charged than would be required in a criminal trial. And four, while there was no automatic congruence between procedural requirements imposed by due process in a criminal case 
and those imposed by due process in juvenile cases, the requirement of proof beyond a reasonable doubt for a determination of delinquency would not jeopardize the essential elements of the state's purpose in creating juvenile courts. And then Justices Berger and Stewart, and that may be Chief Justice Berger, my apologies if it is, expressed the view that the original concept of the juvenile court system was to provide a benevolent and less formal means than criminal courts can provide for dealing with the special problems of youthful offenders, and that there was no constitutional requirement of due process sufficient to overcome the legislative ju judgment of the states in such area, the juvenile system requiring breathing room and flexibility in order to survive. And Justice Black stated that the Constitution does not expressly require proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to the correct meaning of due process of law is that the government must proceed according to the law of the land, that is, according to written constitutional and statutory provisions as interpreted by court decisions. Three, the natural law due process notion under which the court frees itself to declare any law unconstitutional that shocks its conscience or deprives a person of fundamental fairness or violates the odds with the basic principle that the government is one of limited powers and four, nothing in the due process clause invalidates the state's decision through its duly constituted legislative branch to apply a standard of proof different from the reasonable doubt standard. And so that's that's Winship. And that was expanding proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I actually did not, I didn't even come across a case establishing proof beyond a reasonable doubt from the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's a tough stand. I mean, reasonable doubt's a tough standard. I can't imagine even jumping above that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um let's let I'm gonna take a little break. I gotta grab a drink. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I meant to refill it before I before I started recording. Um, but we'll just any thoughts, any questions? No, no questions. I mean, I'm just, I mean, I know, I'm sorry, I keep saying it. I'm just amazed at how much the Warren and Berger court have affected current jurisprudence. I mean, it's like, it's yes. hard to think about like, what is the, what does the legal system look like before 1960? I mean, so much happened on the court. It, it was very different. Um, I, and I don't think there were as many cases, criminal cases uh, of this magnitude even brought, though. Because post-conviction litigation was not what it became even in the 40s and 50s. Now that may be so a you think it's of more of a function of just more like more appeals happened after the 60s. I I think yeah, I think it was actually probably the 40s and 50s that more appeals started happening and more um more, you know more more criminal defense attorneys started looking at things and thinking maybe things needed to change. Gotcha. Uh, because you got to remember, I mean, in 1930s, 
if you were convicted of a capital crime and sentenced to death, you were executed within a yeah. pretty short period of time. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until maybe the 40s, 50s that people, uh, that post-conviction and, and federal habeas and, and all those things began to take shape to what they've become today. That is That's an interesting topic to to research and look up and and maybe look at at some point. Yeah, it's really, and I mean, yeah, I think that's what's interesting is how do you, yeah, what was, what did it look like before? And just, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it was, it was so biased toward the prosecution. I mean, the pendulum always swings, you know, it's like you, because one way that it overcorrects and then back and overcorrects. And so, yeah, we're probably in a little bit of an overcorrect cycle, but yeah, maybe before the 60s, it was, it was pretty tough. Maybe it was hard to get a fair shake back then. I, I think in certain, I, I think in some cases certainly was. Um, but I think also, you know, you can't really compare pre-Greg death penalty cases to modern death penalty. Yeah. Because before Greg, the options weren't there that right. were you know became were enacted after Furman. Right. And were passed muster after Greg. All right. So our next case is one you and I both um are quite familiar with in principle. North Carolina versus Alford. Oh yeah, the US infamous 25, Alford plea. Nineteen seventy. Uh, this arose from a murder that occurred in the winter of 1963. Uh, it was in North Carolina, uh, and the case was ultimately brought to the federal system uh, under federal habeas to the Middle District of North Carolina. The victim was Nathaniel Young. The defendant was Henry C. Alford. He was indicted on December 2nd, 1963, of first-degree murder. Apparently, between his indictment and December 10th, 1963, his public defender talked with all the witnesses that Mr. Alfred said would exonerate him. And unfortunately, the witnesses were not exculpatory. They were inculpatory. And so his public defender suggested that he plead guilty because in a first-degree murder case in North Carolina the potential penalty is death. Um, and a little bit of background, this case, Mr. Alfred went to the bar. He and Mr. Young got into a fight. He left the bar. He went home. He got his gun. He said he was going to go kill somebody. He went back out. And then when he came home, he said he had killed somebody. Mr. Young was found shot to death. But nobody witnessed the murder, uh, and I'm I'm sure that the um, I'm sure that Mr. Alfred believed that all those people at the bar would, um, like I said, he thought they would he they would exonerate him, but they didn't, um, and so he was he was advised to plead guilty, which he did on December 10th, 
1963, but he pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Now, during his guilty plea, he pled guilty and he he admitted he was knowingly and voluntarily pleading guilty at the advice of his attorney, but he made statements that said, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. I didn't do it. Um, which became fodder for his post-conviction claims later on. Um, he was unsuccessful post-conviction in North Carolina, but he was uh, successful at the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal in um, after his appeal in the Middle District of North Carolina because the Fourth Circuit reversed his conviction. Um, so the state of North Carolina appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Appellant, the state of North Carolina, sought review of a judgment from the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit that reversed and the denial of appellee's petition for a writ of habeas corpus on the ground that appellee's guilty plea in a murder case was made involuntarily because his principal motivation was fear of the death penalty. A judgment reversing the denial of appellee's petition for a writ of habeas corpus on the ground that a guilty plea in a murder case was made involuntarily because its principal motivation was fear of the death penalty was vacated and the case was remanded. Appellee testified in state court that he did not commit the murder but chose to plead guilty to avoid the threat of the death penalty. The Supreme Court held the mere fact that appellant would not have pleaded guilty except for the opportunity to limit the possible penalty did not show that the plea did not result from a free and rational choice, especially where appellee was represented by competent counsel whose advice was that the plea would be to appellee's advantage due to the great weight of the evidence against him. According to the court, the standard for determining the validity of a guilty plea was whether it represented a voluntary and intelligent choice among the available alternatives in view of the strong factual basis for the plea shown by the state and Appellee's clear desire to enter it, it despite his professed innocence, the trial judge did not commit constitutional error in accepting the plea. Outcome was a judgment reversing the denial of Appellee's petition for writ of habeas corpus on the ground that Appellee's guilty plea in a murder case was made involuntarily, was vacated, and the case was remanded for further proceedings where the fact that Appellee would not have pleaded guilty except for the opportunity to limit the possible penalty did not necessarily show that the plea was not the product of a free and rational choice. So the case was vacated and remanded on November 23rd, 1970, holding the trial judge did not commit constitutional error in accepting Appellee's guilty plea, a guilty plea that represents a voluntary and intelligent choice among the alternatives available to a defendant, especially one represented by competent counsel, is not compelled within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment because it was entered to avoid the possibility of the death penalty. And that cites to Brady versus United States, which is a totally different case. Hudson versus United States, which held that a federal court may impose a prison sentence after accepting a plea of nolo contendere, implicitly recognized that there is no constitutional bar to imposing a prison sentence Upon, upon an accused who is unwilling to admit guilt, but who is willing to waive trial and accept that sentence. An accused may voluntarily, knowingly, and understandingly consent 
to the imposition of a prison sentence, even though he is unwilling to admit participation in the crime, or even if his guilty plea contains a protestation of innocence, when, as here, he intelligently concludes that his interests require a guilty plea and the record strongly evidences guilt. The 14th Amendment and the Bill of Rights do not prohibit the states from accepting pleas to lesser included offenses. And, um, you know, I think another another aspect of Alfred pleas that people, especially those who want to believe that there's some kind of magic uh, acquittal, is that they also involve an acknowledgement by the person making the plea that there is sufficient evidence to convict if they go to trial. And that is what happened with Mr. Alfred. He may have thought the evidence would clear him, but it didn't. Right. And had he gone to trial, he would have been con he would have been convicted and he would have likely been sentenced to death. Um, and even that is not. That is a rational choice to not risk being sentenced to death if you go to trial and are convicted. Um. You know, another thing that states do is they they will get co-conspirators or accomplices to 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 uh, enter pleas and testify against somebody else. Another common thing, but Alfred plea does not mean I'm innocent. I'm really innocent. And the court's just forcing me to do this for appearances sake. Uh, it is a legitimate guilty plea. And it right. acknowledges sufficient evidence to convict. Yeah, and I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, people tend to think that the Alfred plea is just like, basically means they're innocent, and it's actually the opposite, right? It means they're guilty, mm -hmm. and they acknowledge they're guilty. Mm. That's the little fine line. Legally, it means they're guilty, but they can say they're innocent. They can claim innocence, but from a legal standpoint, they're guilty. So it, acknowledging guilt is not um, not necessarily part of it. I mean, it's the same. I mean, go back to the West Memphis Three. I mean, everybody says like, oh, they, you know, they took the Alfred plea because that was the only thing. But again... Mm -hmm. they could have asked for a new trial if they had evidence that said they were innocent. They could have asked for a new trial and been exonerated, but well, no. They... They, were, they were actually, they were in the process of presenting their allegedly exculpatory evidence at hearings on new trial motions where the court would decide whether they were entitled to new trials or not. And this is the thing that I have said from day one. The fact that their attorneys came up with the Alfred pleas and went to Scott Ellington and said, we'll enter Alfred pleas. And Scott Ellington said, okay, because he was a dumb fucking son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> means that they knew they weren't going to win new trials. To me, that means they knew their, their evidence was insufficient for them to carry the burden that they had to meet at the new trial hearings and that they were going to lose. And that's why they went and got the, that's why they went and did the Alfred police. Right. 
because it would get him out of prison. But in the Alford police, they admitted there was sufficient evidence to convict him if they were retried. In spite of what they claim to be exculpatory evidence. So, um, but they can claim they're innocent. I think that's where, um, I don't know if you've ever watched a Judge Judy where somebody had been (laughs) charged with a criminal offense and they had pled guilty and they try to tell Judge Judy you know, I did. I wasn't really guilty. I just pled guilty. Well, if it wasn't an Alfred plea, you were guilty. I mean, if you if you weren't really guilty, then you lied to the court. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know. Um. So yeah, but there's there is, of course, in this. Um. Uh. What is what is it? Joe Berlinger calls it post truth society that we live in now. Oh it's yeah, totally. Yeah, it's just like a totally like yeah, just whatever your reality is, you must make it up as you go. Yeah. All right. So the opinion was authored by Justice White, and he was joined by Chief Judge Berger, Justice Harlan, and Stewart and Blackman. Uh, Justice Black authored a concurrence, which just basically concurred with the opinion of the court. Or I missed what he actually said. My apologies to everyone. (laughs) And then um, Justices Brennan, Douglas, and Marshall issued a dissent, or Brennan authored a dissent and was joined by Douglas and Marshall, that basically said the defendant's guilty plea was not voluntary since the record showed that the plea was induced by the influence of the unconstitutional threat of the death penalty. The defendant's denial of guilt also being a relevant factor in determining whether the plea was voluntarily voluntarily and intelligently made. So that is Alfred. Um, that's another case we might delve into to see um, you know, how it played out. Um, I believe they reversed, so he stayed in prison and did his 30 years. Um, but that's another one we may look at in depth. Uh, okay. So the next case is Giglio, 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 many people pronounce it different ways, Mm -hmm. uh, versus us 406 us 150. And that was, that's a case from 1972. Uh, the crime was involved passing of forged money orders. The jurisdiction venue was federal. Um, although I don't know specific state or federal jurisdiction. Um, my computer was acting up, so I didn't want to push it. Uh, the defendant was John Giglio. I'll settle on Giglio. Uh, the court appealed from was the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Defendant appealed a judgment from the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, affirming the district court's denial a defendant's motion for a new trial following conviction for passing forged money orders. Defense counsel asked a witness on cross-examination if any promises of leniency had been made, and the witness falsely answered no. The prosecution presented no such promises had been made. Upon learning that a promise not to prosecute the witness had in fact been made, defendant moved for a new trial based upon the newly discovered evidence. The appellate court affirmed the trial court's denial of the motion. 
On certiorari, the court reversed and remanded because the prosecution's failure to disclose the promise of leniency to the witness was an issue affecting credibility, which was therefore material. The suppression of evidence violated due process and warranted a new trial, whether it resulted from the prosecutor's negligence or deliberate deception. And the outcome is that the court reversed the appellate court's judgment and the trial court's conviction of defendant and remanded the case for a new trial. And this is another one we're going to look at in more detail because as I recall, what happened was the prosecutor left the prosecutor's office and then filed a writ of error quorum nobis for an accomplice who had testified against Giglio, Giglio, Giglio. Um, and I forgot to write his name down. My apologies. Uh, the decision was made February 24th, 1972. Uh, the uh, reverse and remand. And the holding is that neither the assistant district attorneys or assistant prosecutors lack of authority nor his failure to inform his superiors and associates is controlling and the prosecution's duty to present all material evidence to the jury was not fulfilled and constitutes a violation of due process requiring a new trial. So I think this was an assistant prosecutor who met with the witness and promised to help. And he didn't communicate that to his superiors. And then he left the prosecutor's office and filed a writ of error quorum nobis for the accomplice to try and get him a lesser sentence <laughs> based on his testimony in this trial. Um, again, this is a case we'll look at in more detail. Yeah. Definitely later. That's crazy. Because that, that is... I mean, you know, that's something that is a concept that a lot of people don't. I don't always find it fair because sometimes if an assistant meets with a witness one time and makes promises but doesn't document them and doesn't pass them on to the people above him and they're the ones who are at the trial, I don't think it's fair to um impugn that knowledge to them but that's what happens right and it it happens sometimes you know a patrol officer makes a statement to a witness or a suspect who is considered a witness at the time and doesn't memorialize it and doesn't write it down and doesn't communicate it and then later on it comes back to bite the detectives in the butt because they didn't know but they're they're supposed to have known so um that's kind of the the process for for jiglio all right next one's a big one Furman versus georgia 408 us 238 decided in 1972 this is another case that involved three underlying cases in which three people were sentenced to death one for murder and two for rape Furman versus Georgia was a murder case. He was sentenced on September 20th, 1968. His docket number was 69-5003. Uh, the next case, 69-5030, was Jackson versus Georgia. Uh, that was a rape case, and he was sentenced to death on December 10th, 1968. 
69-5031 is Branch versus Texas, another rape case, and he was sentenced to death on July 26, 1967. Furman and Jackson each were in Chatham County, Georgia, which is uh, around Savannah. Um, and then Branch was out of Wilbarger, Texas, Wilbarger County, Texas. Have no, I, I have no clue where that is. Mr. Texas, where's where's Wilbarger? That's a good one. I don't know where Wilbarger is. <laughs> I feel like my default is around Houston. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know the counties around Houston and Will Barger is not one of them. Okay, Will um, Barker. It, it, it is... might be out in West Texas somewhere. We're going to put it in West Texas for right now. I don't know. Why don't you look? Uh, Will Barger. Okay, I'm computer? looking at Will Barger County. Yeah. Oh, no, that's in. Oh, well. Yeah, it's by Wichita Falls, so right past oh, Wichita Falls. Okay. So yeah, it's huh. Vernon. I guess Vernon is probably Vernon is, the yeah. County Vernon seat. is the town. Yeah, and, okay. yeah. So yeah, right. So Wichita, when you go past where, Wichita, Wichita Falls, north by Oklahoma. Uh, yeah, it's like northwest of Dallas. So yeah. Okay, northwest of Dallas. Gotcha. Yeah, All between right. uh, Dallas and Amarillo. So right before you get to Quanta, you'll go through Will Barger County. Okay. The victims, uh, William Mickey was uh, Furman. The victims in Jackson and Branch are not identified. They were rape victims. Um, defendants were William Henry Furman, Lucius Jackson, and Elmer Branch. Uh, the state courts were the Supreme Court of Georgia and the Court of Criminal Appeals of Texas. Petitioner prisoners were sentenced to death after being convicted of murder and rape in the states of Georgia in Texas. After direct review failed, the, the, the prisoners sought to attack their sentences collaterally through a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court of Georgia and on certiorari to the Court of Criminal Appeals of Texas, arguing that the death penalty imposed by the states was illegal under the 8th and 14th Amendments. The prisoners challenged the imposition of the death sentence in petitions for a writ of certiorari. The court found that the key question was whether the imposition and carrying out of the death penalty under laws applicable to the prisoners constituted cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the 8th and 14th Amendments. In reversing the judgments, the court held that the death penalty did violate the 8th and 14th Amendments because the application of the penalty was discretionary, haphazard, and discriminatory in that it was inflicted in a small number of the total possible cases and primarily against certain minority groups. The judgments were reversed and, and, and with directions to vacate the death sentences imposed, and the cases were remanded for further proceedings. The decision came down on Ju June 29, 1972, reversed sentences with instructions to vacate Holding the impositioning and carrying out of the death penalty in these cases constitute cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the 8th and 14th Amendments. And the outcome of this was that death sentences across the country that had become final were commuted to life in prison in California and Texas in any state that still had the death penalty or, or had the death penalty at the time. Um, but states also began enacting le legislation that changed 
the way the death penalty was imposed and put procedures in place to try to meet the constitutional requirements found lacking in the prior uh, statutes that they had enacted. Uh, and I think this is where splitting cases into guilt and innocence and, and punishment phases came about as well. The majority opinion was authored by Justice Douglas Percurium. Um, the uh, He also authored a concurrence, stated that it is cruel and unusual to apply the death penalty selectively to minorities whose numbers are few, who are outcasts of society, and who are unpopular, but whom society is willing to see suffer, though it would not countenance general application of the same penalty across the boards, and that because of the discriminatory application of statutes authorizing the discretionary imposition of the death penalty, such statutes were unconstitutional in their operation. Justice Brennan stated that the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment was not limited to torturous punishments or to punishments which were considered cruel and unusual at the time the Eighth Amendment was adopted, that a punishment was cruel and unusual if it did not comport with human dignity, and that since it was a denial of human indignity for a state to arbitrarily subject a person to an unusually severe punishment, which society indicated that it did not regard as acceptable, and which could not be shown to serve any penal purpose more effectively than a significantly significantly less drastic punishment, death was a cruel and unusual punishment. Justice Stewart stated that petitioners were among a capriciously selected random handful upon whom the sentence of death was imposed, and the 8th and 14th Amendments could not tolerate the infliction of a sentence of death under legal systems which permitted this unique penalty to be so wantonly and so freakishly imposed that it was unnecessary to reach the ultimate question whether the infliction of the death penalty was constitutionally impermissible in all circumstances under the 8th and 14th Amendments. Justice White stated that as the state statutes involved in the present cases were administered, the death penalty was so infrequently imposed that the threat of execution was too attenuated to be of substantial service to criminal justice, but that it was unnecessary to decide whether the death penalty was unconstitutional per se or whether there was no system of capital punishment which would comport with the Eighth Amendment. And Justice Marshall stated that the death penalty violated the Eighth Amendment because it was an excessive and unnecessary punishment and because it was morally unacceptable to the people of the United States. So this is where we're seeing an activist court um, to yeah, a degree. Yeah. Because yeah, you're they seeing used, the transition from interpreting laws to making laws. They, they use that activism to try to eliminate the death penalty as a punishment yeah. across the board in the United States. Uh, Chief Justice Berger, Justice Blackman, Powell, and Rehnquist, uh, Justice Berger authored a dissent, and he was joined by Justice Blackman, Powell, and Rehnquist. He stated that the constitutional prohibition against cruel and unusual punishments could not be construed to bar the imposition of the punishment of death that the Eighth Amendment did not prohibit all punishments with which the states were unable to prove necessary to deter or control crime, that the Eighth Amendment was not concerned with the process by which a state determined that a particular punishment was to be imposed in a particular case, 
that the Eighth Amendment did not speak to the power of legislatures to confer sentencing discretion on juries rather than to fix all sentences by statutes and that to set aside the petitioner's death sentences in the present cases on the ground that prevailing sentencing practices did not comply with the Eighth Amendment involved an approach which fundamentally misconceived the nature of the Eighth Amendment guarantee and flew directly in the face of controlling authority of extremely recent vintage. Justice Blackman stated that although his personal distaste for the death penalty was buttressed by a belief that capital punishment served no purpose, which could be demonstrated, and although the arguments against capital punishment might be a proper basis for legislative abolition of the death penalty or for the exercise of executive clemency, the authority for action abolishing the death penalty should not be taken over by the judiciary in the modern guise of an Eighth Amendment issue. Justice Powell, Chief Justice Berger, Justice Blackmun, and Justice Rehnquist, in a dissent authored by Justice Powell, stated that none of the opinions support the court's decision provided a constitutionally adequate foundation for the decision and that the case against the constitutionality of the death penalty fell far short, especially when viewed from the perspective of the affirmative references to capital punishment in the Constitution, the prevailing precedents of the Supreme Court, the limitations of the exercise of the Supreme Court's power imposed by tested principles of judicial self-restraint, and the duty to avoid encroachment on the powers conferred upon state and federal legislatures. And finally, Justice Rehnquist authored a dissent, joined by Chief Justices Berger, Blackman, and Powell, emphasized the need for judicial self-restraint and stated that the most expansive reading of the leading constitutional cases did not remotely suggest that the Supreme Court had been granting a roving commission, either by the Founding Fathers or by the framers of the 14th Amendment, to strike down laws which were based upon notions of policy or morality suddenly found unacceptable by a majority of the Supreme Court. And so that's that's Furman. And again, it is activism run rampant. Yeah, I mean, you really start to see in the 60s and the 70s, the court moving from a body that interprets laws to a body that wants to make laws. Yeah. All right. Our next case is Chambers versus Mississippi, and that is 410 U.S. 284, 1973. Um, This case arises from a murder that occurred on June 14th, 1969. Uh, It happened in Woodville, Mississippi, uh, which is in Amy County. The victim was Officer Aaron Sonny Liberty, who was a Woodville police officer. The defendant was Leon Chambers. Uh, There was an alternate suspect named Gable McDonald. Uh, Mr. Chambers was arrested on June 14, 1969, because he had gunshot wounds inflicted on him by Officer Liberty and or his fellow Woodville police officer who there was apparently this big shootout and altercation among the police and multiple people in the streets of Woodville. Um, The jurisdiction was Amy County Sheriff. Um. 
The trial was held in October 1970 in Amy County Circuit Court, and the court appealed from is the Mississippi Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court of Mississippi affirmed defendant's conviction for the murder of a policeman. The U.S. Supreme Court granted certiorari to consider whether defendant's trial was conducted in accord with principles of due process under U.S. Constitutional Amendment 14 in light of the trial court's failure to allow defendant to cross-examine a key witness and the exclusion of exculpatory evidence by application of the hearsay rule. Uh, and so just a little background, basically, um, there was an allegation that Gable McDonald had confessed to committing the murder of Officer Liberty and that Gable McDonald had confessed to multiple people that he had killed Officer Liberty. Um, so that's that was what was kept out of Mr. Chambers's trial. Defendant was convicted of murdering a policeman. The state Supreme Court affirmed the judgment. The court granted certiorari to consider whether defendant's trial was conducted in accord with principles, principles of due process under the U.S. Constitution Amendment 14 in light of the trial court's failure to allow defendant to cross-examine a key witness in the exclusion of evidence by application of the state hearsay rule. The court reversed defendant's conviction. It held that the exclusion under state hearsay rules of exculpatory testimony that another party had committed the crime which under the circumstances was likely to be trustworthy and within the rationale of the exception for declarations against penal interest, coupled with the state's refusal to allow defendant to cross-examine a key witness because of a common law rule that a party may not impeach his own witness, denied him a trial in accord with fundamental standards of due process. The court reversed the defendant's conviction. So the conviction was reversed and remanded, uh, and that decision was handed down on February 21st, 1973. The defendant's due process claims had been sufficiently raised in state courts and were properly before the Supreme Court. Under the circumstances of the case, the application of the state rules of evidence to preclude the defendant from cross-examining the witness who had first confessed and then repudiated his confession and from introducing the hearsay testimony as declarations against interest concerning the witness's oral confessions violated the defendant's due process right to a fair trial, including the right to confront and cross-examine adverse witnesses and to prevent, present witnesses in his own behalf, and the cumulative effect of such erroneous rulings required reversal of the convictions or the conviction. Uh, the majority, this is a procurium opinion authored by Justice Powell. Justice White conferred, stated that the, the constitutional issues had been sufficiently raised in the state courts to establish the Supreme Court's jurisdiction since there had been repeated objections to the exclusion of the evidence, although not on constitutional grounds. The matter had been presented in federal due process terms to the state Supreme Court, and the state had not denied the that the issues were properly before the courts. Justice Rehnquist authored a dissent stated that the court did not have jurisdiction since the defendant had failed to property ra properly raise the constitutional issues in the state courts as required under 28 U.S.C.S. 1257, Section 3. Um, the defendant having delayed the express assertion of any constitutional contention until filing his motion for new trial after the jury returned a guilty verdict and it being doubtful whether he had adequately raised the constitutional issues even then, since the general assertion in the motion for new trial 
of a de denial of fundamental fairness under the 14th Amendment was not specifically directed to the separate assertions of alleged error in the exclusion of the evidence. So, um, and this is basically a, a tenet of federal post-conviction for state prisoners is that you have to give the state courts the first opportunity to correct errors. And that means you have to present the errors to the state courts in the same way that you've pre you're presenting them to the federal courts. And that's where we hear unexhausted and exhausted in federal habeas litigation. Mm, so, gotcha. Um, so you can't just do it to the federal. You have to do it to state court and the federal. Right. Court. So and and I think there was there was a a argument that he didn't present. And I looked at his state appeal briefly, and he didn't present the issues in the same way to the state Supreme Court um, that he presented to the federal court. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, I I don't, but the, the U.S. Supreme Court didn't agree. They, pardon me, people. Um, sorry, I felt that um, they felt that he did present them adequately, and they they have final say whether we agree with them or not. Um. All right. So the next case is Greg versus Georgia, four twenty eight U.S. one fifty three, and that arises from an armed robbery and murder that occurred on. November 21st, 1973, it occurred in Gwinnett County, Georgia. Uh, the victims were Fred Simmons and Bob Moore. The defendant in this case was Tony Gregg. He had an accomplice who I, I didn't I didn't note. Um, I should have, but I didn't. He was arrested on November 24th, 1973 in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, the state court appealed from was the Georgia Supreme Court. The decision was handed down on July 2nd, 1976, and was affirmed. Now, Georgia had, between, after Furman, Georgia redid its death penalty statutes. And so they had a death penalty statute, and they went back to sentencing people to death. So Greg's case came about as a part of that new statute. The punishment of death for the crime of murder does not, under all circumstances, violate the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments. The Eighth Amendment, which has been interpreted in a flexible and dynamic manner to accord with evolving standards of decency, forbids the use of punishment that is excessive either because it involves the unnecessary and wanton infliction of pain or because it is grossly disproportionate to the severity of the crime. Though a legislature may not impose excessive punishment, it is not required to select the least severe penalty possible, and a heavy burden rests on those attacking its judgment. The existence of capital punishment was accepted by the framers of the Constitution, and for ne nearly two centuries, this court has recognized that capital punishment for the crime of murder is not invalid per se. 
legislative measures adopted by the people's chosen representatives weigh heavily in ascertaining contemporary standards of decency and the argument that such standards require that the Eighth Amendment be considered as prohibiting the death penalty has been undercut by the fact that in the four years since Furman Supra was decided, Congress and at least 35 states have enacted new statutes providing for the death penalty. Retribution and the possibility of deterrence of capital crimes by prospective offenders are not impermissible considerations for a legislature to weigh in determining whether the death penalty should be imposed, and it cannot be said that Georgia's legislative judgment that such a penalty is necessary in some cases is clearly wrong. Capital punishment for the crime of murder cannot be viewed as invariably disproportionate to the severity of that crime. The concerns expressed in, for in Furman that the death penalty not be imposed arbitrarily or capriciously can be met by a carefully drafted statute that ensures that the sentencing authority is given adequate information and guidance, concerns best met by a system that provides for a bifurcated proceeding at which the sentencing authority is apprised of the information relevant to the imposition of sentence and provided with standards to guide its use of that information. The Georgia statutory system under which petitioner was sentenced to death is constitutional. The new procedures on their face satisfy the concerns of Foreman, since before the death penalty can be imposed, there must be specific jury findings as to the circumstances of the crime or the character of the defendant, and the state Supreme Court thereafter reviews the comparability of each death sentence with the sentences imposed on similarly situated defendants to ensure the sense of death in a particular case is not disproportionate. Petitioners' contentions that changes in Georgia's sentencing procedures have not removed the elements of arbitrariness and capriciousness condemned by Furman are without merit. The opportunities under the Georgia scheme for affording an individual defendant mercy, whether through the prosecutor's unfettered authority to select those whom he wishes to prosecute for capital offenses and to plea bargain with them, the jury's option to convict a defendant of a lesser-included offense, or the fact that the governor or pardoning authority may commute a death sentence do not render the Georgia statute unconstitutional. Petitioner's argument that certain statutory aggravating circumstances are too broad or vague, like merit, since they need not be given overly broad construction or have been already narrowed by judicial construction, one such provision was held impermissibly permissibly vague by the Georgia Supreme Court. Petitioner's argument that sentencing procedure allows for arbitrary grants of mercy reflects a misinterpretation of Furman and ignores the reviewing authority of the Georgia Supreme Court to determine whether each death sentence is proportional to other sentences imposed for similar crimes. Petitioner also urges that the scope of the evidence and argument that can be considered at the pre-sentence hearing is too wide but it is desirable for a jury to have as much information as possible when it makes a sentencing decision. Finally, the Georgia sentencing scheme also provides for automatic sentence review by the Georgia Supreme Court to safeguard against prejudicial or arbitrary factors. In this very case, the court vacated petitioner's death sentence for armed robbery as an excessive penalty. The uh, majority opinion was again per curiam, which is by the court, um, St Justice Stewart authored it. He was joined by Justice Powell and Justice Stevens. 
Justices White, Justice White authored a concurrence joined by Justice Chief Justice Berger and Rehnquist expressing the view that, one, the death penalty imposed for murder under the new Georgia statutory scheme could be constitutionally carried out since, A, the statutes not only guided the jury in its exercise of discretion in determining whether it would impose the death penalty, but also gave the Georgia Supreme Court the power and duty to, to decide whether, in fact, the death penalty was being administered for any given class of crime in a discriminatory, standardless, or rare fashion, and B, the defendant had failed to establish that the Georgia Supreme Court had not performed its task in the instant case or that it was incapable of performing its task adequately in all cases. Two, the statutory scheme was not unconstitutional on the ground that the pr prosecutor's decisions in negotiating pleas or in declining to charge capital murder were standardless since it could not be assumed that prosecutors would not be motivated by factors other than the strength of their case and the likelihood that a jury would impose the death penalty if it convicted. And three, the defendant's contention that the death penalty, however imposed and for whatever crime, constituted cruel, cruel and unusual punishment was without merit. Chief Justice Berger authored a concurrence joined by Justices White and Rehnquist agreeing with the analysis that Georgia's system of capital punishment comported with the holdings in Furman. Uh, Justice Blackman referred to his dissent in Furman um, in his concurrence. Then Justice Brennan authored a dissent expressing the view that the cruel and unusual punishment clause must draw its meaning from evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society to the consideration of evolving standards of decency required fo focusing upon the essence of the death penalty itself and not primarily or solely upon the procedure under which the determination to inflict a penalty upon a particular person was made. Three, the death penalty served no penal purpose more effectively than a less severe punishment would. And four, our civilization and a law had progressed to the point where the court should hold that the punishment of death for whatever crime and under all circumstances was cruel and unusual in violation of the 8th and 14th Amendments. And Justice Brennan would issue more or less the same dissent in any death penalty case that came before the U.S. Supreme Court from this day forward. Uh, Justice Marshall issued his dissent, which expressed the view that the death penalty was cruel and unusual punishment, prohibited by the 8th and 14th Amendments because it was excessive, being unnecessary to promote the goal of deterrence of crime or to further any legitimate notion of retribution. And I just want to address one thing. The death penalty is a punishment. It is not to prevent someone from saying, well, I won't kill anybody because I might get the death penalty. Because one thing we know about criminal minds and criminals is that they don't expect that they'll get caught. And when they do get caught, they expect that they can talk their way out of their troubles. So um, they're not going to decide, although there have been studies that have found that some people did in states like Texas or Georgia or other southern states who did during an armed robbery say they didn't carry a gun because they didn't want to accidentally kill anybody. Because then they face the death penalty. So you don't do you not think the death penalty is a deterrent at all? It's a punishment. 
and and it deters it eventually deters the person who committed the murder but to say just as to say that prison sentences are meant to keep other people from committing other crimes that's ridiculous prison sentences aren't meant to deter other crime by other individuals they're meant to deter that individual from committing additional crimes um it's more the death penalty is more an incapacitator because it makes it although you know a, a people on death row have managed to kill guards or you know COs or other prisoners um you know I mean I, I I don't like I said the concept of it being a deterrent to Joe Blow on the street that's a ridiculous argument for the anti-death penalty folks to make because that's their argument that it doesn't work because it doesn't deter crime but again you know there are there have been studies that people said i didn't carry a gun because i would have been eligible for the death penalty if somebody died yeah um and it it eventually deters the person sentenced but it's not it's not to say that it should keep me from committing murder saying okay well i won't kill my ex-husband because i could get the death penalty kind of that's an impossible burden yeah yeah i mean it's interesting i mean because for me i mean i don't know i mean i guess everybody's different like i've not been in prison but like I mean, where I said today, I would honestly almost rather just like have the death penalty than spend like 40 years in prison because prison seems pretty crappy. <laughs> like I'd yeah. almost rather just go to heaven than have to, you know, sit in prison for all those years. But I know, I mean, it does seem like for a lot of people, I mean, I don't know. I mean, they do a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot, you know, prosecutors use you know, taking the death penalty off the table to get a lot of like information from people or you know, confessions Correct. or whatnot. So, I mean, it does seem to be, has some kind of impact. Yeah. And you have to look at in, in the, in terms of post-conviction death penalty cases are afforded. There are a lot more resources. There are a lot oh, more yeah. attorneys. There are, um, there are some like in Arkansas, you know, they have statutes that, if you if you're facing the death penalty and you're late in an appeal, they'll let you file an out of time appeal. Right. Or, you know, they'll let you um Eccles had one where he had, I think, on one of his Rule 37s, they let him pursue something because it was a death penalty case. Right. You know, so um but uh yeah. So that was that that was the um reinstatement of the death penalty. Like I said, after Furman, a lot of states legislators went to work and they they got new legislation, but it also ended up like California, the Manson family, all those people were sentenced to death and their sentences were commuted. And because there was no life without parole 
in California at the time they were sentenced, they were eligible for parole. And as we've seen, Leslie Van Houten was released on parole um, because she was finally successful in an appeal of Gavin Newsom's parole decisions. So um, that's something to talk about another time. Yeah, that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole other uh, eight hours of conversation. <laughs> yeah. So all right. Um, so keep moving. Um, we've got Brown versus Ohio, four thirty two U.S. one sixty one nineteen seventy seven. This involved an auto theft and joyriding, which occurred on November 29th, 1973. Now, actually, the car was stolen and the kid was riding around in the stolen car for about eight days. Um, the charge involved the day of November 29th. Um, he was uh, arrested. This was in East Clay Cleveland, Ohio and Wycliffe, Ohio in Cuyahoga County. He was indicted on February 5th, 1975 for theft of a vehicle and joyriding on 11-29-1973. Um, he had been arrested on, on December 8th, 1973 in Wycliffe, Ohio. Uh, he pled guilty to joyriding a misdemeanor in Wycliffe uh, and was sentenced to 30 days in jail and released on January 8th, 1974. Then Cuyahoga County uh, decided to go after him for a felony. They got the felony indictment in 1975. And um, and that may have been 1974. Because I think it was, I, I think I have typo. It should be 74. Because um, it was not long after he was released. And he entered a guilty plea to the felony. But then he sought review of the decision of the Court of Appeals of Ohio, affirming the decision of lower court that determined that the government's indictments for stealing an automobile and operating a vehicle without the owner's consent, joyriding, were not barred by the double jeopardy uh, Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution when defendant had already pleaded guilty in another county uh, for joyriding and the two actions arose out of the same incident. Um, and I have Wycliffe as being in Cuyahoga County, but I may be mistaken. It may be in another county. My apologies. <laughs> Defendant stole a car from an East Cleveland, Ohio parking lot and was caught nine days later in Wycliffe, Ohio. Defendant pleaded guilty to the crime of operating a vehicle without the owner's consent, joyriding, after the charges were brought by Wycliffe officials. Defendant was then returned to East Cleveland, where he was charged with stealing an automobile auto theft from the same incident. The trial court overruled defendant's objection to the charges on the basis of double jeopardy, uh, U.S. Constitutional Amendment 5, and the appellate court affirmed. The court reversed and the decision of the the court reversed the decision of the appellate court. The court held that auto theft and joyriding were a greater and lesser included offenses under Ohio law and constituted the same offense for purposes of the double jeopardy clause, U.S. Constitutional Amendment 5. The court held that the violations arose out of the same offense because the required proof of the same set of facts and the successive prosecution was prohibited. The court held that the prosecution could not allege two separate offenses under applicable Ohio law 
simply because the auto theft and joyriding took place over a nine-day period. The court reversed the decision of the appellate court that determined that a subsequent prosecution of defendant for stealing an automobile after he had pleaded guilty to operating a vehicle without the owner's consent was not barred by double jeopardy. The court held that double jeopardy applied when the charges arose out of the same incident and there was no additional proof required in the auto theft charge. The decision was handed down on June 16, 1977, of course reversed, holding that where the same act of transaction constituted a violation of two distinct statutory provisions, the test for determining whether there were two different two offenses or only one for purposes of the double, double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment was whether each provision required proof of a fact which the other did not. A lesser included offense required no proof beyond that which was required for conviction of the greater offense. The greater offense thus being the same for double jeopardy purposes as any lesser offense included in it. Since joyriding was a lesser included offense of auto theft under Ohio law, the double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment applicable to the states under the 14th Amendment barred prosecution and punishment of the defendant for auto theft it being immaterial that the prosecution for auto theft was based on the original taking of the auto, whereas the earlier joyriding prosecution had been based on the defendant's driving of the auto on the last day of his nine-day joyride. Since there was no Ohio statute providing that joyriding was a separate offense for each day in which a motor vehicle was operated without the owner's consent, and no state court interpretation of the Ohio joyriding statute to such effect. Uh, the majority was uh, opinion was authored by Justice Powell, and he was joined by Justice Brennan, Stewart, White, Marshall, and Stevens. Justices Brennan, joined by Justice Justice Brennan, joined by Justice Marshall, uh, issued a concurrence expressing the view that the state court's judgment could also be reversed on the ground that the double jeopardy clause should be construed as requiring the prosecution in one proceeding, except in extremely limited circumstances not present present in the case at bar of all the charges against the defendant that grew out of a single criminal act, occurrence, episode, or transaction. Justice Blackman authored a dissent joined by Chief, Chief Justice Berger and Justice Rehnquist, expressing the view that, one, the Ohio courts could properly find, consistent with the double jeopardy clause, that the defendant's acts were sufficiently distinct to justify a second prosecution. Two, the Ohio Court of Appeals had found that the two prosecutions were based on the defendant's separate and distinct acts committed nine days apart. Three, the two acts were not so closely connected in time as to require treating them as one offense for double jeopardy purposes. And four, the double jeopardy clause did not require the Ohio courts to hold that the allowable unit of prosecution was the defendant's course of conduct rather than the separate segments thereof. And I, I, you, I use this one because we have two later cases on double jeopardy that are really interesting. So um, I put this one in here because this is kind of the double jeopardy primer. Um, and then there are two other ones that are really interesting that we'll talk about next, next time, two weeks from, from today. Okay, our next case is Lockett versus Ohio for 30, 437 U.S. 586. 
It was decided in 1978. It arises out of an aggravated murder and aggravated robbery committed on January 15th, 1975. It was committed in Akron, Summit County, Ohio. The victim was Sidney Cohen. The defendant was Sandra Lockhart, Lockett, rather, but not the same Lockett as the uh, execution debacle in Oklahoma. Uh, the accomplices in the crime were Al Parker, Nathan Earl Dew, and Sandra Lockett's brother, whose first name is not recorded by history that I could find. Um, the arrest was January 15, 1975, Akron, Ohio. In uh, April 3, 1975, uh, Sandra Lockett was found guilty after a trial. The state court appealed from was the Court of Appeals for Summit County, Ohio. Defendants sought certiorari review of an order from the Supreme Court of Ohio, which upheld her conviction and death sentence for aggravated murder with aggravating specifications after taking part in a robbery murder. Defendant was convicted of aggravated murder and sentenced to death in connection with a robbery murder during which she waited in the getaway car she was driving. The state Supreme Court affirmed her conviction and sentence. On her petition for further review, the Supreme Court reversed the death sentence holding that the Ohio death penalty statute, statute violated the 8th and 14th Amendment prohibitions against cruel and unusual punishment because it did not permit the sentencer to consider a necessary range of mitigating factors, including the defendant's character, age, record, or the circumstances of the offense. The statute was unconstitutionally, unconstitutionally narrow where it imposed a mandatory death sentence based on a finding that the victim did not induce the offense, that the defendant did not act under duress or coercion, and that the crime was not the product of the victim's mental deficiency. Under section 2929.04b, the court could not consider as constitutionally required that defendant had not intended to kill the victim and that she played a minor role in the crime unless the circumstances pertained to the three mitigating factors. The court reversed the judgment as to the death penalty and remanded for further proceedings. The reverse as to death penalty and remanded. That decision was handed down on July 3rd, 1978. Um, the holding is somewhat lengthy. Uh, parts one and two, the prosecutor's closing references to the state's evidence as unrefuted and uncontradicted. No evidence having been introduced to rebut the prosecutor's case after petitioner decided not to testify did not violate the constitutional pro prohibitions against commenting on an accused failure to testify where petitioner's counsel had already focused the jury's attention on her silence by promising a defense and telling the jury that she would testify. The exclusion from the veneer of four prospective jurors who made it unmistakably clear that because of their opposition to the death penalty, they could not be trusted to abide by existing law and to follow conscientiously the trial judge's instructions under Boulder versus Holman did not violate petitioner's Sixth and Fourteenth Amendment rights under the principles of Witherspoon versus Illinois or Taylor versus Louisiana. Petitioner's contention that the Ohio Supreme Court's interpretation of the complicity provision of the statute under which she was convicted was so unexpected that it deprived her of fair warning of the crime with which she was charged is without merit. 
the court's construction was consistent with both prior Ohio law and the state's legislative history. <clears throat> Pardon me. In part three, the limited range of mitigating circumstances that may be considered by the censor under Ohio death penalty statute is incompatible with the 8th and 14th Amendments. The 8th and 14th Amendments require that the sentence in all but the rarest kind of capital case not be precluded from considering as a mitigating factor any aspect of a defendant's character or record and any of the circumstances of the offense that the defendant proffers as a basis for a sentence less than death. The need for treating each defendant in a capital case with a degree of the degree of respect due the due to the uniqueness of the individual is far more important than in non-capital cases, particularly in view of the unavailability with respect to an ex executed capital sentence of such post-conviction me mechanisms in non-capital cases as probation, parole, and work furloughs. A statute that presents a sentencer in capital cases from giving independent mitigating weight to aspects of the defendant's character and record and to the circumstances of the offense proffered in mitigation creates the risk that the death penalty will be imposed in spite of factors that may call for a less severe penalty. And when the choice is between life and death, such risk is unacceptable and incompatible with the commands of the 8th and 14th Amendments. Pardon me a moment. The Ohio death penalty statute does not permit the type of individualized consideration of mitigating factors required by the 8th and 14th Amendments. Only the three factors specified in the statute can be considered in mitigating in mitigation of the defendant's sentence, and once it is determined that none of those factors is present, the statute mandates the death sentence. Justice White uh, concluded that petitioner's death sentence should be vacated on the ground the Ohio death penalty statute permits a defendant convicted of aggravated murder with specifications to be sentenced to death, as petitioner was in this case, without a finding that he intended death to result. Justice Marshall expressed the view that the death penalty is, under all circumstances, a cruel and unusual punishment prohibited by the Eighth Amendment, concurred in the judgment insofar as it vacates Petitioner's death sentence and also concurred in the judgment insofar as it affirms her convictions. Justice Blackman concluded that petitioner's death sentence should be vacated on the grounds that, one, the Ohio death penalty statute is deficient in regard to petitioner, a non-trigger man charged with aiding and abetting a murder, and failing to allow consideration of the extent of petitioner's involvement or the degree of her mens rea and the commission of the homicide, and two, the procedure provided by an Ohio rule of criminal procedure, giving the sentencing court full discretion to bar the death sentence in the interest of justice if the defendant pleads guilty or no contest, but no such discretion if the defendant goes to trial, creates an unconstitutional disparity of sentencing alternatives under United States versus Jackson, 390 U.S. 570. Um, the majority... Uh, was op opinion was authored by Chief Justice Berger, joined by Justice Stewart, White, Blackman, Powell, Rehnquist, and Stevens. Uh, Justices Berger, Stewart, Powell, and Stevens all issued concurrences in Part Three, which are the it, ones I read to you. Uh, 
Rehnquist concurred in part and dissented in part. And in his dissent, he expressed the view that when a defendant was fairly tried and was found guilty of aggravated murder, a state should not be required to receive any sort of mitigating evidence before imposing the death sentence. And two, the Ohio procedure was not constitutionally defective for A, not permitting jury participation in the sentencing process, B, failing to require the state to prove the absence of mitigating factors beyond a reasonable doubt, C, providing for a, tr a trial by a three-judge panel when a jury was waived, or D, authorizing the trial court to dismiss the specification of aggravating circumstances, thus precluding the imposition of the death penalty only when a defendant... Are you there? Yeah. Only when a defendant pleaded guilty or no contest. Uh, and Justice Brennan took no part in consideration or consideration in this decision. Um, my internet seems to be fading out. What did you, what, where did I, where did I go? Yeah, I don't know. You dropped out for a second. That's why I was like, I, okay. Just like a minute, like 30 seconds ago, you dropped out for like five seconds, 10 seconds, maybe. Okay. Um, well, um, what I will do is I will post Justice Rehnquist's full dissent comments in the comments uh, for this case. This is the case that kind of set the modern mitigation procedures in death penalty litigation. Are you there? Yep, I'm okay. still here. All right, so um, yeah, I'll I'll post Justice Rehnquist's full dissent um, in the comments so that people can read the entire thing, um, and we'll move on. <laughs> All right, the next case is Jackson versus Virginia, four forty three U.S. three hundred seven, nineteen seventy nine. It involves a first degree murder in Chesterfield County, Virginia. And this was a federal habeas corpus claim to the U.S. District Court, Eastern District of Virginia. The victim was Mary Houston Cole. The defendant was James Jackson. Uh, he was arrested in North Carolina after a brief trip to Florida. Uh, he was tried at a bench trial in 1975 and found guilty. He, this is an appeal, again, from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals after denial of habeas relief. Petitioner inmate was convicted after a state bench trial of first-degree murder. The Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit reversed the district court's grant of habeas corpus relief on the basis that was there was no evidence of premeditation because some evidence existed that the inmate intended to kill the victim. The inmate was granted certiorari. The inmate claimed that a federal habeas court did not have to consider whether there was any evidence to support a state court conviction, but had to determine whether there was sufficient evidence. The court held that, assuming the procedural prerequisites were satisfied, the inmate was entitled to habeas relief if there was evidence that no rational trier of fact could have found proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment protected a criminal defendant against conviction except upon proof beyond a reasonable doubt of every fact necessary to constitute the crime charged. A state prisoner who alleged the evidence could not be fairly characterized as sufficient to 
have led a, tri a rational trier of fact to find guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, stated a constitutional claim cognizable in a federal habeas proceeding. Review of the record in the light most favorable to the prosecution established a rational fact finder could readily have found the inmate guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of first-degree murder under state law. The judgment of the appellate court reversing the district court's order granting habeas relief to the inmate was affirmed. And that decision was handed down June 28, 1979, again, affirmed. Um, and this was basically Mr. Jackson's claim was that he shot the victim, but he was too drunk to form intent or premeditation. And therefore, he was not guilty of first degree murder. And the evidence did not prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt of first degree murder. Um, he admitted to shooting the victim, but he claimed he didn't have intent. Um, we'll see. We'll see why that was not successful for him in the United States Supreme Court. In a habeas corpus proceeding arising out of a claim that a person has been convicted in a state court upon insufficient evidence, a federal court, rather than restricting its inquiry merely to whether there is any evidence to support the conviction, must consider whether there is sufficient evidence to justify a rational trier of fact to find guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and therefore, in a challenge to a state court conviction under 28 U.S.C. 2254, the applicant is entitled to habeas corpus relief, assuming settled procedural prerequisites for such relief have, have otherwise been satisfied if it is found that upon the record evidence adduced at trial, no rational trier of fact could have found proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt in terms of the substantive elements of the criminal offense as defined by state law and Viewed in the light most favorable to the prosecution, sufficient evidence existed for a rational fact finder to conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that the criminal defendant in the case at bar possessed the necessary intent and committed first-degree murder under the law of Virginia, notwithstanding evidence that he had been intoxicated on the day of the killing since, A, uncontradicted evidence established that the defendant had shot the victim twice, B, the defendant himself admitted that the fatal shooting had occurred only after he had first fired several shots into the ground and then reloaded his gun. C, the evidence was clear that the two shots that killed the victim were fired at close and thus predictably fatal range by a person who was experienced in the use of the murder weapon. D, immediately after, shooting, after the shooting, the defendant drove without mishap into another state. And E, Shortly at, before the fatal episode, the defendant had publicly, expre publicly expressed an intention to have sexual relations with the victim whose body had been found partially unclothed. The opinion was the majority opinion was authored by Justice Stewart, joined by Justice Brennan, White, Marshall, and Blackman. The concurrence was issued by there was a concurrence issued by Justice Stevens joined by Chief Justice Berger and Justice Rehnquist, and Powell took no part in the consideration or decision in this case. Uh, there were no dissents. Um, and this is the case we hear about when um, in post-conviction in state court and federal court, people are challenging 
the sufficiency of the evidence used to convict them. Or they're arguing what that I've produced so much evidence that is inculpatory as to someone else or that proves I didn't do it, that um, there is no longer sufficient evidence to convict me. So that yeah, is... No, that's helpful because this is definitely one I'm not as familiar with as some of the other ones. You see it a lot more on direct appeal. Yeah. But you will occasionally see it in the context of federal habeas litigation as uh and in more you know like i think um i think we might have seen it in ronnie reed's case because now they're claiming they've produced evidence or when they were when they were in federal habeas they claimed that they produced evidence that exonerated him yeah gotcha so all right, next case is Kyler versus Sullivan, 446 U.S. 335. This one was decided in 1980. Uh, the crime is a first-degree murder that occurred on June 17, 1966. Uh, it came out of the Court of Common Pleas in Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and the U.S. District Court, Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Um, so this was actually an appeal arising from a uh, habeas litigation. The victims were John Gorey and Rita Janda. Uh, Mr. Gorey was a um, an official in the Teamsters Local 107 Union, and the murder occurred in there in the Teamsters office in Philadelphia. The defendant is John Sullivan. Um, so Kyler the Petitioner in this case was probably the warden. Um, and then his accomplices in that case were Gregory Carcidi and Anthony De Pasquale. The uh he was arrested on November 3rd, 1966, after a coroner's inquest. Uh, he was tried in June 1967 and found guilty. The court appealed from is the Third Circuit Court of Appeal. The court granted certiorari on a judgment from the United States Court of Appeals for the Third for the Third Circuit, which reversed defendant's conviction for first degree murder and held that defendant's U.S. Constitutional Amendment six rights were violated when two lawyers had represented defendant and his two co-defendants, and there was a showing of some possible conflict of interest in that representation. Defendant and his co-defendants were indicted for first-degree murder. Two lawyers represented all three defendants throughout the trial. Defendant did not object to the multiple representation. Defendant was convicted while his co-defendants were acquitted. The lower appellate court found that both lawyers had represented defendant and that reversal was required because there was a possibility of a conflict of interest in the representation. The court vacated, holding that state courts were not required to inquire into the sufficiency of multiple representation where no parties objected and no special circumstances were present, where defendant raised no objection at the trial to the sufficiency of the multiple representation. He was required to show that an actual conflict of interest adversely affected his lawyer's performance. A possible conflict of interest was not enough to establish an effective, an ineffective assistance of counsel. The court vacated the lower appellate court's decision 
and remanded for further proceedings. So that decision was handed down on May 12, 1980. The holding was while a petition for habeas corpus pursuant to 28 U.S.C.S. 2254D based on the alleged failure of retained counsel to provide effective representation to a state criminal defendant cannot be denied on the ground that the conduct of retained counsel does not involve state action, a convicted criminal defendant nonetheless is not entitled to habeas corpus relief based on a violation of the Sixth Amendment right to effective representation upon a showing of multiple representation which involves a possibility of conflict of interest. Since the mere possibility of such a conflict is insufficient to impugn a criminal conviction, a defendant being required to establish that an actual conflict of interest adversely affected the performance of counsel in order to demonstrate a violation of the Sixth Amendment, and two, a trial court, unless it knows or reasonably should know that a particular conflict is, exists, is not required to initiate an inquiry into the propriety of multiple representation if no party lodges an objection. And this is an interesting one. This is one that the West Memphis Three tried to raise early on um, based on the allegations regarding Paradise Lost and the money that the attorneys received for their participation. Um, I don't know if anybody recognizes that name, <laughs> but that's where it came from in my brain. Um, the majority, I think that's right. Huh? That's right. That makes sense. <laughs> so, the majority opinion was authored by Justice Powell. He was joined by Chief Justice Berger, Justice Stewart, White, Blackman, Rehnquist, and Stevens. Uh, Justice Brennan authored a concurrence expressing the view that, one, the alleged failure of retained counsel to render effective assistance involves state action and thus provides the basis for a writ of habeas corpus. Two, the trial judge must play a positive role upon discovering joint representation and ensuring that a defendant's choice to share a lawyer is knowing and intelligent and must at least affirmatively advise a defendant that joint representation creates potential hazards which the defendant should consider before proceeding with the representation. And three, the defendant in the case at bar who showed a significant possibility of conflict should have been entitled to a presumption that his representation, in fact, suffered. Um, so that's kind of an in-part concurrence and an in-part dissent. And then Justice Marshall concurred in part, but also dissented, expressing the views that defendant's lawyers had, in fact, undertaken multiple representation, a conviction obtained when a defendant's retained counsel provides ineffective assistance involves state action that may provide the basis for a writ of habeas corpus. And three, the potential for conflict of interest in representing multiple defendants is so grave that whenever two or more defendants are represented by the same attorney, the trial judge must make a preliminary determination that the joint representation is a product of the defendant's informed choice and accordingly must inquire whether there is multiple representation, warn the defendant of the possible risks of such representation, and ascertain that the representation is a result of the defendant's informed choice. And 
this one, um, these were two privately retained lawyers. And it may very well be that they tried Mr. Sullivan first and they lost. And so they knew where they'd gone wrong in their next trial and they didn't do something that they did in Mr. Sullivan's trial. But Mr. Sullivan has to show what they did wrong. He can't just say, I was convicted and they were acquitted, therefore, this must have been bad. He has to show an actual conflict. He has to show that the attorney who represented him didn't represent him fully because he was representing the other guy. But again, it may be a question that he asked in Sullivan's trial that he elected not to ask in the next trial. As simple as that. Um, it may be calling a certain witness that he didn't call in Sullivan's trial. Or it may have been this that there's different evidence against Sullivan and these other two defendants and that Sullivan, the case against Sullivan was stronger. More likely than not, that's probably it because they went to trial with him first. So um, that's another one I think I'll look into. And see what I can find on on the difference between those three cases or among those three cases all right next case and we're in the home stretch because mm -hmm. <laughs> i kind of don't want to miss big brother tonight <laughs> <laughs> but you know i mean i can watch it on paramount if i if i miss it it's not it's not a big deal they need um, to have little brother <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next case is Enman versus Florida, 458 U.S. 782, decided in 1982. It involves a first-degree murder and robbery that occurred on, or two first-degree murders and robbery that occurred on April 1st, 1975. It came out of the 10th Judicial Circuit Court in and for Hardy County, Florida. The victims were Thomas, uh, 86, and Eunice Kersey, 74. The defendant is Earl M. Enmond. Accomplices were Samson Armstrong, Jeanette Armstrong, and Ida Jean Snow. Uh, the arrest was in Hardy County, Florida. Uh, Mr. Enmond was found guilty at trial and sentenced to death. Uh, the state court appeal from is the Supreme Court of Florida. Defendant sought a writ of certiorari challenging a judgment of the Supreme Court of Florida, which affirmed his conviction for two counts of first-degree murder and one count of robbery and a sentence of death. Defendant was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and one count of robbery and sentenced to death. His conviction was affirmed by the state's highest court and defendant sought review. The court reversed and remanded his death sentence, holding that capital punishment was not appropriate for defendant. Defendant was a participant in a robbery in which his co-defendant killed the two victims. There was no evidence the defendant either killed or intended to kill the victims, or the, that he intended that deadly force be used. Only eight jurisdictions allow for the imposition of the death penalty for those convicted of vicarious felony murder. 
Allowing capital punishment in such cases did not serve either the deterrence or the retribution purpose of capital punishment and violated the Eighth Amendment. The court reversed and remanded the defendant's death sentence, holding that his only participation in the crimes was his partner in a robbery. The court found that defendant did not kill or even intend to kill the victims. Therefore, capital punishment was not proper for defendant. Uh, the decision was handed down on July 2nd, 1982, reversing and remanding as to the death sentence and holding the imposition of the death penalty upon petitioner is inconsistent with the Eighth Amendment, Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments. A, the concurrent judgments of legislators, juries, prosecutors weigh heavily on the side of rejecting capital punishment for the crime at issue. Only a small minority of states, eight, allow the death penalty to be imposed solely because the defendant somehow participated in the robbery in the course of which a murder was committed, but did not take or intend to take life or intend that lethal force be employed. And the evidence is overwhelming that American juries have repudiated imposition of the death penalty for crimes such as petitioners. The statistics demonstrating that juries and perhaps prosecutors consider death a disproportionate penalty for those who fall within petitioner's category. Now, that's not true. If that were true, then why would they sentence him to death? Why would his jury have sentenced him to death if they don't believe that's right? That's a good point. I, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, so while robbery is a serious crime deserving serious punishment it is not a crime so grievous and affront to humanity that the only adequate response may be the penalty of death, Greg versus Georgia, the death penalty, which is unique in its severity and irre irrevocability is an excessive penalty for the robber who as such does not take human life. Here, the focus must be on petitioner's culpability, not on those who committed the robberies and killings. He did not kill or intend to kill, and thus his culpability is different from that of the robbers who killed, and it is impermissible for the state to treat them alike and attribute to petitioner the culpability of those who kill the victims. See, neither deterrence of capital crimes nor retribution is sufficient justification for executing petitioner. It is unlikely that the threat of the death penalty for murder will measurably deter one such as petitioner who does not kill or intend to kill. As to retribution, this depends on the degree of petitioner's culpability, culpability, which must be limited to his participation in the robbery. Putting him to death to avenge two killings that he did not commit or intend to commit or cause would not measurably contribute to the retribution end of ensuring that the criminal gets his just desserts. Um, the majority was authored by Justice White, and he was joined by Justice Brennan, Marshall, Blackman, and Stevens. Uh, Justice Brennan authored a concurrence expressing the view that the death penalty is in all circumstances cruel and unusual punishment prohibited by the 8th and 14th Amendments. Uh, Justice O'Connor authored a dissent joined by Chief Justice Berger, Justices Powell, and Rehnquist in which she expressed the view that, one, the court's holding that the Eighth Amendment prohibits a state from executing a convicted felony murderer was not supported by the analysis in the court's previous cases and interfered with state criteria for assessing legal guilt by recasting intent as a matter of federal constitutional law, and 
2022 in light of the Florida Supreme Court's rejection of critical factual findings, a remand was required for a new sentencing hearing. Um, so this is one, and we've seen this, I think we saw uh, Fairchild try to claim he didn't actually kill. Uh, or maybe it was Benjamin Cole whose attorneys were trying to claim he didn't actually kill. Yeah, I think it was Cole, right? Yeah, might have been Cole. I think um, so. I may be wrong, but I think that's right. Um, so um, the next case is D.C. Court of Appeal versus Feldman, 460 U.S. 462, uh, decided in 1983. And this is another non-criminal case. But we hear about Rooker Feldman. So this is the case. Um, the jurisdiction venue is District of Columbia. The petitioner was the D.C. Court of Appeals. The respondents were Edward J. Hickey and Mark Feldman. Uh, the lower court was the D.C. Court of Appeals. Petitioners, District Court of Columbia Court of Appeals, the Committee on Admissions, and various office, officers sought review of a judgment from the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which held that proceedings denying respondent bar act applicants waiver into the bar of the District Columbia were not judicial and thus did not foreclose litigation of respondents' claims in a district court. Petitioners sought review, which held that the proceedings whereby respondent bar applicants attempted to waive into the bar for the District of Columbia were not judicial and thus did not foreclose litigation of respondents' constitutional claims in a district court and that remanded the case for consideration on the merits. The court held that the admission proceedings before Petitioner Court of Appeals were judicial in that they involved a claim of a present right to admission to the bar and a denial of that right such that, as a determination from the highest court of the District of Columbia, the decision was only appealable, appealable to the United States Supreme Court. The court also held, however, that to the extent respondents challenged the general constitutionality of D.C. Court of Appeal Rule 461B-3, which was used to deny their admission to the bar, a district court could have subject matter jurisdiction over their complaint because no review of final state court judgment was required. Accordingly, the judgment below was vacated and the case was remanded for further proceedings. The judgment that held that the proceedings for waiver into the District of Columbia Bar were not judicial was vacated and the case was remanded. Respondents' assertion of present rights to admission to the bar and the denial of those rights were, was judicial and so only applicable to the United States, appealable to the United States Supreme Court. But a district court did have subject matter jurisdiction over general constitutional challenges to the rules of bar admissions. So the case was vacated and remanded to the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia for further proceedings. And the holdings were the same as those I just read. Uh, the majority was authored by Justice Brennan, Chief Justice Berger, Justices White, Marshall, Blackman, Powell, Rehnquist, and O'Connor all joined. Uh, Justice Stevens wrote a dissent expressing the view that the applicants could make a general constitutional attack in the federal courts on the rules governing the admission of lawyers to practice in the District of Columbia 
and a United States District Court has jurisdiction over a claim that those rules have been administered in a constitutional matter. Um, so that was, and these these attorneys had graduated from non-ABA approved law schools, which were uh, what's required in D.C. And I think actually a couple of them, one of them hadn't even gone to law school, but he had taken advantage of a, a an admission practice in the state that allowed kind of like an apprenticeship in in early um, like in England you didn't go to law school you went and worked for a lawyer a solicitor or a barrister and as a clerk and then you were admitted to the bar after so many years of of that um, it wasn't an, an educational. Yeah, because I think you can, I mean, I think you can be an attorney if you just pass the bar, right? You actually don't have to well, go to law school. There are different states have different rules. Um, there is a rule in California where you can kind of do a quasi apprenticeship and you could take, if you can pass their bar exam, you can be a lawyer without, but you have to have an undergraduate degree. Uh, some states require a law, a juris doctor, which is a law school degree. Um, and some schools, and, and I think in the District of Columbia, they require that you graduate from an ABA approved law school. So it varies from state to state. Um and but if you go like if you go to a state that does allow somebody who doesn't actually graduate from law school. Sorry, that was my big brother alarm. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you go to a state that has a procedure for a non-law school graduate with a bachelor's degree or a master's to take the bar exam and you're admitted to practice then you can probably practice in other states and take their bar exams as well. However, right. if they require a law school degree, you have to get them to waive that. And I think the thing with DC is they weren't willing to waive the law school, ABA approved law school degree. So, um, that's we, but we hear about Rooker Feldman, and that's whether that decided that their controversy could be decided in a U.S. district court. So they sent it back to the U.S. district court to decide. Gotcha. All right. And then the final case is Strickland versus Washington, which is one we hear about a lot in the context of ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, Strickland versus Washington, 466 U.S. 668. It was decided in 1984. It involved three counts of murder uh, for murders committed on September 20th, 1976, September 23rd, 1976, and September 29th, 1976. Um, the crimes involved, this was a crime spree between uh, 
September 20th, 1976 and October 1st, 1976, where Mr. Washington committed robberies, attempted murders, kidnapping, torture, and murder. The jurisdiction was in Florida. Um, Strickland is the, is the warden, and Mr. Washington is the criminal or the inmate. Uh, the victims in this case were Reverend Daniel Pridgen, Ms. Katrina Burke, and Frank Melly, who was 20. Uh, there were also three additional victims who were sisters-in-law of Ms. Burke, who were not identified in the uh, pleadings or the, the opinions that I found. The defendant was David Leroy Washington. Um, he surrendered in Dade County, Florida on October 1st, 1976. He was tried December 1st, 1976. He entered a guilty plea after waiving jury. He was sentenced December 6th, 1976 to death. Again, waived his jury. Um, the court appealed from was the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal, which was the former 5th Circuit Court of Appeals. I think right around 1984, the 5th Circuit had um, too many courts or their their caseload had gotten too big. So they took um, Florida and Alabama and I think Georgia and took them out of the 5th Circuit and put them in the 11th Circuit. Um, respondent sought review of a judgment of the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit contending that his death sentence could have been should have been overturned as the strategic decisions upon which he was advised by his attorney during his trial constituted ineffective assistance of counsel in violation of his right to counsel pursuant to uh, the Sixth Amendment. On review by the Supreme Court, respondent contended that his death sentence should have been overturned as the strategic decisions upon which he was advised by his attorney during the guilt and penalty phase of his trial constituted ineffective assistance of counsel, thus violating his right to counsel pursuant to U.S. Constitutional Amendment 6. On appeal, the death sentence was affirmed. In support of its ruling, the Supreme Court held that in order to show that counsel's assistance was so defective as to require reversal of a death sentence, respondent must have shown counsel's performance was deficient and that such deficient performance prejudiced the defense. In applying this standard, the court further held that respondent's counsel's performance could not be deemed unreasonable, and even if as such was the case, respondent suffered insufficient prejudice to warrant setting aside his death sentence. In addition, in failing to make a showing that the justice of his sentence was rendered unreliable by a breakdown in the adversary process caused by deficiencies in counsel's assistance, Respondent also failed to show that his sentencing proceeding was fundamentally unfair. Respondent's death sentence was affirmed as Respondent's counsel's performance could not be deemed unreasonable, and even if such was the case, Respondent suffered insufficient prejudice to warrant setting aside his death sentence. And this is, um, uh, this is the ineffective assistance of counsel. This is what you have to show, what you have to prove. Um, so the decision was handed down on May 14th, 1980. Was that 1985? 
1984. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> the holding um, is the same, pretty much the same as what I read in the prior um, in the prior paragraphs. Um, but I will say uh, the proper standard for judging attorney performance is that of reasonably effective assistance considering all the circumstances. When a convicted defendant complains of the ineffective effectiveness of counsel's assistance, the defendant must show that counsel's representation fell below an objective standard of reasonableness. Judicial scrutiny of counsel's performance must be highly deferential and a fair assessment of attorney performance requires that every effort be made to eliminate the distorting effects of hindsight to reconstruct the circumstances of counsel's challenged conduct and to evaluate the conduct from counsel's perspective at the time. A court must indulge a strong presumption that counsel's conduct falls within the wide range of reasonable professional assistance. These standards require no special amplification in order to find counsel's duty to investigate the duty at issue in this case. And interestingly enough, one of the other things is that Mr. Washington was acting against his counsel's advice, which is likely what led his counsel to advise him to waive jury and take his chances with only a judge. And um, finally, you know, finally, their holding was the facts of the case make it clear that counsel's conduct at and before respondents' sentencing proceeding cannot be found unreasonable under the above standards. They also make it clear that even assuming counsel's conduct was unreasonable, respondents suffered insufficient prejudice to warrant setting aside his death sentence. And, you know, how often have you and I seen advocates say, the evidence was insufficient. There was reasonable doubt he was convicted, and therefore he must have had bad lawyers. We've seen this all the time. I see this constantly. With yeah, it's like anybody who's convicted is always, uh, mm -hmm. what do you call it, ineffective counsel. It's like, yeah, by nature, if you're convicted, your counsel was bad. Yeah, uh, even though that's not the standard at all. Right. Um, it shouldn't the, be. Yeah, no, no, it shouldn't. It it. Um, but it everybody feels be. like they can just file that appeal and you know add you know waste some more court time, suck up some more. Yeah, yeah. You know. So, but you have to show you have to show unreasonable decisions, and you have to show actual prejudice from those unreasonable decisions. Right. Uh, the majority opinion was issued by Justice O'Connor joined by Chief Justice Berger and Justices White, Blackman, Powell, Rehnquist, and Stevens. Justice Brennan concurred in part, but issued a dissent on the ground that the death penalty in all circumstances is, what do we say, children? Cruel and unusual punishment forbidden by the 8th and 14th Amendments. And Justice Marshall also dissented, stating that the announced standard for effective representation is so malleable that in practice it will either have no grip at all or will yield excessive variation in the manner in which the Sixth Amendment is interpreted and applied by different courts and that the defendant in the present case was not effectively represented at and before the sentencing hearing. And so that's a, Washington's another case we're going to, I think, look at. 
in depth in a later episode. Because I, that one is a, an interesting an interesting underlying factual pattern that um, would have taken a lot more time for me to develop for this episode. So we'll we'll develop that for a future episode. So any thoughts? No, I mean, it's a great review. I mean, I think it's, I mean, we've said before, I think it's interesting. So much of this has been like the Supreme Court creating law since the 70s, you know, or the 60s, 60s, 70s, you know, the Warren and the Burger Court just created mm -hmm. all this law that had such an impact on the criminal justice system these days. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and, and call it because I think we're about to run out of Zoom time. Uh, thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans. If you like the show and want to know more, you can subscribe to, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Facebook, or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Kyle and I will return in two weeks for Episode 11, Notable Supreme Court Cases Part 2. We'll look at cases decided since 1985, including Floyd, Schlupp, Herrera, Atkins, Roper, and Martinez Trevino. We'll continue looking at the background of these cases, the issues raised, and the decisions of the court. Until then, have a great two weeks and stay safe. Mm -hmm.